Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. This is episode 194, coming up quickly on a milestone episode. Uh... We are recording this on Sunday, October 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 o'clock p.m. Central Time. I'm Terry. We have Todd. We have Zach. Zach, the Central Time one. How's it going, guys? Solid. Just peachy. I, I, I... had to wear Mariners after yesterday. My word. That was nuts. Yeah. If if the Braves and the Mariners uh, play in the World Series, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. Zach, you texted me, Team of Destiny. Yeah, I can't say I watched the game, but uh, that was pretty remarkable. And, and the blue, it was a classic underachieving Blue Jays team as well, which made it all the better. I've said this on the podcast before. You guys are like... You know, it's it's uh, the reincarnation of the 2014 Royals. I mean, I, I think you guys are going to sweep the Astros. And uh, I think you are uh, America's sweetheart right now. And it's much, much deserved and uh, long overdue. Well, the one team we can't play against is the Astros. Like, they're the one team we can't beat. And we so, own the Blue Jays all year. And we, we've owned the Blue Jays. We've owned the Yankees. We've owned, we've owned the Guardians. We've owned everybody else. Hey, come Except on. Except the Astros. What, has 20 years of losing destroyed any irrational confidence? I mean, you guys should be totally pumped right now, you know? Last time we faced Verlander, he went, he almost threw a perfect game and had 15 strikeouts. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I love the postseason mantra, embrace the chaos. I think yesterday was a perfect example of embracing the chaos. Um, and I have a story about that later that uh, I will share. But uh, yeah. Well, speaking of things that haven't happened since 2001, um, the so the the Huskies played at Arizona State and they were like 14 point favorites. And the Huskies have not won there since 2001. I was so about to just load up on Arizona State money line and I regrettably didn't do it. And they were down the entire game. Like that was it, it was just a terrible, terrible showing. The The desert just weird shit happens when you play down there even though it's an awful Arizona state team. Well, and it was a midday game that you never get midday games in Arizona. It was just, yeah, it was bad on bad on bad. It was like, I don't know, plus 600 or something for like a single game in a place. You haven't won in 21 years. I should have done it, but I'm dumb. I decided well, I, to bet on Utah and that didn't work. I yeah, put that a, was dumb. I put a small bet on a three on a three way parlay for today's games, and I'm potentially going to lose all three parts. So, I have Sung J M to beat Max Homa today, which that's going to cash at least. So I got one thing going for me. That's good. Well, you got we're, that we're going for you. You got that going for you, which is nice. Uh, yeah, How was we're... game day? Uh, I slept in because I'm sick. But uh, watching on TV was pretty spectacular. And uh, I did just see a few moments ago that we did not move at all from number 19, which I think is a sign of respect from the AP. So uh, 
That team saying that the, that the refs missed a pass interference, which would have kept your drive going and, and potentially and of course the caller and uh, yeah, everything. The, the refs were it was a bit dubious in that game. However, I, I will say that our, our last touchdown uh, that was a 50 50 call. We, he could have been called out. So I don't know. It's I guess it all breaks even in the end. Hey, listen, it's TCU. It's not Oklahoma. I mean, I, I support TCU. It was a it was a great day, great atmosphere for everybody. And, uh, you know, I think if the pressure would have been mounting if we had won that game. So we just want to get bull eligible. We have our sights. We don't have that lofty of expectations right now. We want to keep Coach Leopold in uh, in Lawrence, and we want to build a $300 million extension to the football stadium, which they also conveniently announced this week. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's solid times here in Lawrence. First, it's Leopold. Get your get your coach's name right if you want to keep him. You said Leopold. Leopold. I'm sick. I'm 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 allowed like five mistakes on this podcast. But I mean, you guys, you guys almost beat a top fifteen team. Now a top fifteen team uh, with your backup quarterback. So I think that yeah, but that was totally the Kirk Cousins taking over for RG three effect, where nobody really knew what that guy was going to bring. He started most of last year. He has the exact same skill set as Daniels, except he's a little bit faster. But they're almost the same quarterback. And when you prepare for one guy, like a Heisman candidate guy, like. Anything else is going to throw you off. Listen, the highlight of yesterday was Rob Riggle talking about all the free beers they were passing out at the Hawk at 2 p.m. Oh, yeah. on uh, Friday. That. So that was that that was the, the best part of yesterday. Although it's sad that I, I missed that on Friday. But, you know, some of us have to work, sadly. All right. Well, uh, make sure you are subscribing, rating, reviewing wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, and uh, make sure that we can be heard by more people. Let's get into this. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking other than, you know, cough medicine? I'm definitely sticking with Agua Fria today. I, I know it's unfortunate, but uh, I'm, uh, you know, I have to survive somehow and make it to tar, you know. <laughs> that's two weeks from now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I got to be in good shape. I don't know. You should have at least have some like, like a hot toddy or something, like some hot water and honey oh. and whiskey. That'd be good for you. Nothing beats congestion quite like vodka. Like it, it, it's not just alcohol, just vodka. Vodka, like if you're congested in any way, just clears it all right out of you. I'm sure it does. I'll Todd, take that into consideration. What do you got? Uh, I have the Altaland High Altitude Cabernet Sauvignon from the strangely natural regions of Argentina, it says on the bottle. It's pretty good. It's really thick. So, I don't know. I don't know what that means, but it's tasty. A little fruity. Nice. Nice. Well, it's it's finally like the middle of October, so I'm I'm going back to the pumpkin beer. Rogue Pumpkin Patch Ale. I figured it was time time to bust it out again it's been sitting in my fridge not really doing much since i got it and drank it that one time and gave me crap for drinking pumpkin beer before uh before october so it's out again now it's solid it's solid beer all right well let's talk about what we've been watching and we are going to start today with zach okay so i went on a canopy run here uh i love canopy I watched a movie that has a grand total of, let me look it up, uh, 1,700 votes on IMDb. That's actually not bad for Canopy. It is a Canadian movie from 1987. It is called I've Heard the Mermaids Singing. It's been on my list for a while. 
director is Patricia Rosima, and uh, it tells the story of uh, this young woman uh, named Polly, played by Sheila McCarthy, and um, she's not the most intelligent woman in the world, um, but she's independent. She's probably about in her late 20s, early 30s, and as the movie starts, she's working for a temp agency, and she gets a job working as a secretary at a local art gallery, um, and the curator of the gallery is named Gabrielle. She's played by Paulet Balayon, something French, and... Uh, Basically, the movie is kind of about how, at first, Polly really reveres this curator and, and almost, um, you know, idolizes her in a way, worships her uh, almost. And you could see a little bit of romantic undercurrents between it. This movie has been described as a queer movie, even though I think it's a little bit ambiguous. Um, but as the movie goes along, we see that uh, the curator's motives are not as pure as Polly might think. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. This is classic, like, indie 80s alternative movies. Um, at one point, apparently, this was ranked as the number nine Canadian movie ever made by the Toronto Film Festival in their 1993 list. It is since no longer on the list. But um, I enjoyed it. The title alludes to uh, a line from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. And it's kind of what it is referring to is people who... Um, you know, haven't quite made it in, in the world, of, haven't been successes. So they, they look at other people around them and, and they idolize them for their successes, um, even in spite of the failures that they themselves have experienced. And, uh, you know, you could describe that about Polly. And then as the movie goes along, you kind of see that it's also about the art curator uh, herself, Gabrielle. I give this movie a solid three and a half stars. It's a, it's a talky character study that is very low budget. It has some cool kind of experimental stuff. Polly talks to the camera. Um, almost like a video diary. Um, there's a few fantasy sequences that are nice where she's like flying over the city in black and white. It's quirky, it's funny, it's Canadian. And uh, it's definitely a, a classic canopy find. So uh, I enjoy it. And it's now my number four movie of my birth year, 1987. Very nice. You'll have to send me the updated uh, 1987 list then. Absolutely. Weak year for movies. All hmm. right. That's why we haven't deep dive in one, I guess. Exactly. We can't even think of one that's 35 <laughs> years old because there are no good ones. This one would have been a cool one to deep dive, but, you know. All and right. some, like, classics, but just not the biggest fans of them, I think. Yeah. I was, I, I, I looked at the 87 list before, and. Like, I Full Metal Jacket would be one that would be awesome, but, like, I don't think we're all the biggest fan of that movie. I've never seen it. Yeah, and and Moonstruck would be also be like a go-to, but I don't think any of us truly love that movie. I've never seen it. I bought the Criterion; it's sitting on my shelf, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, there. I don't know. The Princess Bride, but I don't think any of us are are true fans of that. And no, you that's, need someone. You know, that's someone more of who's a, a real fan. That's more of a Daily Notes uh, podcast. Uh, it, I think he is it, a fan of that one. It's I sad that Wall Street. No, that'd be fun. But... I've actually never seen Wall Street. I've never seen Wall Street. Uh, I, wow. It's sad that in the 1987 list, I have Brave Little Toaster in my top ten. That's that's just depressing. Brave Little Toaster's in my top ten as well. It's a that we could. That's deep probably in our top five. Isn't now it? that probably. is a movie that would be fun <laughs> to watch. You got John Lovitz pre League of Their Own, kind of doing the same kind of role. You got the blanket. You've got the the vacuum cleaner. Awesome movie. What would even qualify for ones that we've all seen then if you guys my number two and number three movies are movies that Zach has assigned me within the last year. 
Oh, that's true. Yeah, over our lays on fire. What was the other one? Come and see. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, interesting year. The Untouchables, maybe? Raising Arizona? I've never seen The Untouchables. Anyways. Podcast news. Haven't seen yeah. it. That's another one. I bought the Criterion. It's sitting on my shelf, but yeah. I just haven't watched it yet. All right. Well, th- this is just depressing. Let's move on. Uh, my turn now. Uh, we're going to a different anniversary year. And we're going to 2012, 10 years ago. Uh, we'll see if you can get this one. This is a movie. It was a sole animated nomination. It was the director's second animated nomination. However, surprisingly, he's never been nominated for any of his live action movies. Uh... This movie was adapted from a short he had previously made. Oh, Frank and Weenie. Frank and Weenie, directed by Tim Burton. Yeah. R- real uh, topical watching Frank and Weenie in uh, in October. October. And they had some they had something up with, you know, these kind of Fright Night animated movies uh, nominating Frank and Weenie and Paranorman in the same year. But uh, yeah, Frank and Weenie. It's a twist off the off the the Frankenstein story where a boy loses his dog and decides he's going to try and resurrect it and does and and uh and other kids find out about it and they try to resurrect other animals and it all goes horribly wrong because there's something in the uh the special touch of of young young victor frankenstein and his uh attachment with sparky because his dog's name is sparky and uh and how uh and their relationship together this has got a really cool voice cast with a uh, Winona Ryder, of course. Catherine O'Hara voices several characters. Martin Short is just is always good to have around, and of course the uh, the menacing science teacher voiced by Martin Landau. Uh, this this movie was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I, I wasn't sure. I wa- sat down, watched it with the kids. I'm like, okay, Tim Burton. Frankenstein story about a dog. I don't know how this is going to go, but it's super sweet and the kids loved it. Uh, three star movie. Just solid three stars. Uh, it, it's, I think I like Paranorman more. Like it's easy to compare those two because they're so similar. I'll, I'll go Paranorman over this, but, uh, but this is still a really solid effort from Tim Burton. And actually, the first uh, animated Tim Burton movie I've ever seen. I haven't seen Corpse Bride. haven't seen Nightmare Before Christmas. This is the first one. And I think with that... Oh, yeah, with that, I have seen now all of the animated movies from 2012. So, Where's your ranking? You know, I knew you were going to ask me that as soon as I saw that. Now I've got to figure that out on the Tim fly. Tim Burton didn't direct Nightmare Before Christmas, I'm pretty sure. I, I think I knew that, but... It, you always think of him when you think of that movie. Um, okay. Or Henry Selick, the guy who did all of like them, a, like an hour, I think. Yeah, all the movies that came out that year are all kind of. It was a great year for animation, and unfortunately, like a sort of unmemorable one. One, like I, I mean, I think Frank and Weenie, Paranorman, and Wreck It Ralph are three of like the most unique animated movies of the 2010s, and Brave is the one that won, which is like okay, whatever. Yeah, I'd probably go Paranorman 1, 
Wreck-It Ralph 2, Frank and Weenie 3, Brave 4, and Pirates Band of Misfits 5. But all of them are, are thumbs-up movies. All of them are at least three stars. Paranorman's the only one I have at three and a half. So, yeah. There we go. Right. Nice. Just what you wanted. The 2012 ranking of uh, best animated nominees. All the breaking news. news. What? This is breaking news. I mean, breaking news. And yeah, it does sound like a weak year. I mean, when the Pixar movie's brave, which just happens to be the movie that my daughter is downstairs watching right now, because it's what she requested. So. So, but what movie are you watching? Oh, I didn't turn one on. I'm paying too much attention to the wild card baseball game, uh-huh. Padres Mets. Okay. Yeah. We're I all rooting one for on. the Padres in that, right? I I, I, may have, I put a little money on the Padres to win this game. So, just a little bit. I mean, but, they're Miles so. and Jack's team, and uh, they haven't done anything in there. How about a Mariners-Padres World Series? That is what America wants. We play them every year. The the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the Peoria Series, because they share a spring training complex in Peoria. That would be great. And just imagine how angry, how much that would upset all the New York beat writers, because they'd have to stay up late. All right, Todd, what'd you watch? Uh, so I watched my number five most anticipated movie of the year, uh, Walter Hill's Dead for a Dollar. Oh, um, nice. It uh, stars Christoph Waltz. He plays Max Borland. Uh, he's a bounty hunter, and he's supposed to retrieve Rachel Kidd, which is played by Rachel Brosnahan, and uh, she's the wife of this powerful businessman played by Hamish Linklater. And he finds that the there's more to the ransom than he actually thought. Like he, she, the relationship between her captor. Uh, played by Brandon Scott, and her is a little bit more complicated. And uh, there also is this other plot of Max and his nemesis, which is a professional gambler, Joe Cribbins, played by Oscar nominee Willem Dafoe. And Waltz in this movie is the undisputed like hero, which is not something I don't think I don't think he's ever played like the actual hero of a movie. He's terrific, but it's just something like he's not sinister. He's not there. There's no like. Um question about him he's the hero and um all the actors underplay it which really makes it sort of like a old-fashioned western kind of thing it's really like a lot of talent not really being used essentially uh the cinematography is really good the face-offs between waltz and defoe are really cool it's almost like de niro and pacino in a setting where they're absolutely in their element um the issue with the movie is it feels like a paul schrader movie uh, it has like the sensibilities of a paul schrader movie it has weird dreamlike flashbacks that are really strange and random characters that don't really add up to much. Uh, the climactic scenes are really extreme, but they're kind of underwhelming at the same time. I love Westerns. Like I'll watch any Western, but given the actors, it should have been a classic if it was directed by like a Tarantino or like Vince Gilligan or the Coen brothers or something. Uh, instead, it's just fine. It's a two and a half star movie. A, a letdown, not, not exactly the the heights that I was hoping for with, uh, with Waltz and Defoe against each other in a Western. Yeah, I've heard that one hasn't gotten the greatest of of reviews. And and even though quietly there was some hype around it because of uh, who was involved with it. So I'm trying to think of a Christoph Waltz movie where he's like, I mean, I guess he's likable in Django Unchained. That was the one I was thinking of. But he's not exactly the hero, though. Like, he hasn't played like the protagonist. Yeah. It's just interesting. I mean, it, he it works. He's 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 really good and he's really charismatic, but it's just not something I've seen him do before. 
All right, Todd. After you asked, I decided I needed to throw on a movie, so I quick did a randomization, and the movie that was selected, one I watched just recently, The Quiet American, which randomly nice. I owned already. So, great Oscar nomination for Mike Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Really, everybody knows that was the best performance of 2002. Way better than, you know, a cager. Yeah. Well, I'm trying to think. I, Adrian Brody won. I'm being sarcastic in that comment. That was the one of the least memorable Oscar-nominated performances of all time, and uh, I just it, it was. Yeah, I think I said it was a makeup nomination, or it was a it was a justification nomination oh, after giving him the Oscar for Satterhouse Rules. Right, and because he was so much better than Adam Sandler in Punch Drunk Love or Edward Norton in Twenty Fifth Hour. I mean. Obviously, Michael Caine was significantly better than either of those. And that, that's Brendan Fraser too, right? Like he was yeah. in that in that vein where he was his co-stars were getting nominated, and he wasn't because he was in Gods and Monsters, and you know, people Last have that. Pass. He was kind of bland in this one too, though. So I think I I think I gave it. I forget what I gave it. Hold on, let me find it here. Do you think that Christian Bale's really pissed off right now that Brendan Fraser's going to win an Oscar for playing a 600-pound man? He's like, God damn it, I should have gotten that in my Google, done that in my sleep. That's what I tried to do four years ago with Dick Shady. Those bastards didn't even nominate me. Oh, and Matt, Matt Damon gains all that weight for the informant. Doesn't even get nominated. You know that Christian Bale's huffing and puffing a lot of cigarettes over this one. He, he's, not, he's not having it. I did give Quiet American three stars, so it's a solid movie but somewhat forgettable. All right. Well, let's move on and let's talk a little bit about Christian Bale because he is in our featured review movie. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You got to see it. Movie reviews. The only real, you know, big movie that came out this weekend that was actually showing everywhere, unlike Tar, which is only in New York and L.A. today. Four theaters. Um, four theaters. But it came out today. It came out this weekend. Four theaters. Four theaters. Um, obviously, we're talking about Lyle Lyle Crocodile. No, um, we are reviewing Amsterdam. The new movie written and directed by David O. Russell. Carol, I don't know what you think you're doing. Excuse me. Hello. Got a dead white man in a box. Not even a casket. Doesn't even have a top on it. In a pine box of old wood. Who do you think's gonna get in trouble here? Do me a favor. Try to be optimistic. You don't get here without things starting a long time ago. So, two soldiers and a nurse found ourselves in... Amsterdam. We formed a pact, and we swore to protect each other, no matter what. Tax the rich. We find ourselves in a situation where we're accused of killing someone, which is not true. Ewan Woodman fled the scene. The killer pointed at us. We didn't do anything. Why would you possibly think that was us? Well, there's not too many people that fit the description of a doctor looking for his eye on the ground with his uh, black attorney. Columbia Law School. 
This is one of the finest innovations from Zurich. It removes all pain. Guys like me, we have to turn to booze, the morphine, and that can lead to addiction. Oh, that's fast. Mm -hmm. That's advanced. <laughs> I think I'm going to start on this one. I thought you were going to say, oh, yellow. Oh, you, you started it. David. David oh, oh Russell. I'm sure that has <laughs> happened before where someone's mistaken. Them. <laughs> the new, is that the new, uh, the new Mark, Mark R. Yes. David. O. <laughs> or maybe how has it, I'm sure it's happened also where people think that he's Irish, like David. O. Russell, like people oh, I've, cool. I've seen, I've seen it hyphen with oh, the, David. O. Russell with the apostrophe before. Yeah. It's like All Robin right, well, Williams' let's... joke about how Barack Obama was the first Irish president. Barack Obama! <laughs> Obama! Sorry. All right, ahead, well, let's David. talk about Amsterdam. Uh, this is the first movie from uh, David O. Russell in a while. Uh, his last movie was in 2015, Joy. Uh, before that, he was on quite a tear where he had uh, The Fighter in 2010, Silver Linings Playbook in 2012, American Hustle in 2013, each of those getting four acting Oscar nominations. Joy kind of flopped. Uh, and then he went through some some struggles in, you know, the, the Me Too movement. And he kind of laid low for a little while. And he pops back up with this star-studded affair in Amsterdam. So this, uh, it says, is partly based off of a true story. And I think the re really they showed the only part of it that was true at the very, very end. But uh, this follows around three main characters played by Christian Bale, John David Washington, and Margot Robbie. They play Bert, Harold, and Valerie. And Bert is a doctor who uh, was a doctor in World War I, has come home, and is now a prosthetic uh, surgeon for uh, returning vets. John David Washington plays a lawyer who was in the regiment with Christian Bale. And Margot Robbie plays a woman who was a nurse in the war and uh, kind of has a mysterious past that we find out about it as the movie goes along. It all starts with them helping out a friend who uh, after their uh, commanding officer died and uh, that gets them into some mysterious, uh, some mysterious just controversy and they're being accused of murder and all sorts of different things. And they go on, they go on a run uh, this movie kind of is all over the place at times. And uh, I thought it started really strong. Then it, it in the middle, it tries to do way, way, way too many things. And uh, by the time you get to the end, 
it tries to focus it back in a little bit uh and i think it does an okay job I, this is a fun movie i actually really enjoyed it i wasn't really expecting much from it because it's kind of getting horrible reviews but uh it it felt like a coen brothers wannabe but also it being set at the time it was it had a little bit of a flair of a little bit of inglorious bastards tarantino in there too but really it was it was trying to be coen brothers and it kind of worked like i said star-studded cast the ones i didn't mention you have uh obviously alessandro nivola who zach said early in an earlier podcast that he is the star of the movie yeah. Uh, Andrea Riseborough, Anya Taylor-Joy, Chris Rock, Matthias Schoenarts, Michael Shannon, Mike Myers, Taylor Swift, Timothy Oliphant, who was unrecognizable. I still don't believe that that actually was Timothy Oliphant. Uh, uh, was Zoe Sald... What? Oh, and he Timothy was the killer. Oliphant. Oh, yeah, yeah, Timothy Oliphant. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. I thought it was Thomas Hayden Church. Like, it looked like Thomas Hayden Church. Um, Zoe Saldana, uh, Rami Malek, Robert De Niro. I mean, the star-studded cast. Anybody who had more than five minutes on screen was played by someone you recognized. Uh, Christian Bale's doing his thing in this uh, and has a really fun character that he's developed. I'm realizing John David Washington is just kind of a flat actor. Like, he doesn't... He has, like, one beat, and that's it. And he uses that one beat in everything that he does. Um the one that really fell out of place was Chris Rock. It was really like, let's just drop Chris Rock in 1930 and see what happens. And they didn't even try to, you know, do anything else with them. They just, let's just have Chris Rock play a 1930s stand-up comedian who was in the war. Um, I, I, with all that said, it was fun. I enjoyed it. Now, here's my story with this. Okay. I went and saw this yesterday. I went to a 355 showing of Amsterdam yesterday. Now, if you do some math and you think about it, the Mariners started at 1. I left to go to this movie at 3.30 when they were down. I think it was, I think they just hit, Santana just hit the homer. It was 8 to 5. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just, there's no way this is actually going to happen. I'm just going to leave. I'm going to go watch some movies so I can get home at a reasonable time instead of going to like the 630 showing when after the game is over. And so uh, so I went. I was the only one in the theater. So I'm like, great. I'm the only one in the theater. I can sit there with my phone on next to me, showing me the, the you know, the MLB app game day page. And I'm sitting there and I I pretty much started screaming in the middle of, the, of a movie uh, where I was the only one in there as you, you know, we have the bases clearing double where Springer and Bichette run into each other and we come all the way back and win the game 10 to nine. All this happened while I was at the movie. So I was kind of on cloud nine watching this and it might've affected my rating of it, but I still enjoyed it because it was an enjoyable time at the movies. I'm giving this movie three stars. Unbelievable. I'm the bad luck guy. That's what I've decided. <laughs> I'm yeah, the bad so you need guy. To, hopefully the game is uh, early so we don't we don't get you don't get to watch it so we can on, win on Friday I didn't get a chance to turn it on until it was already three nothing like once I started watching they didn't score so yeah I just need to not not watch apparently and then they'll win or even though I've watched like, a every, Russell movie yeah exactly even though I've watched like every Mariner game of the year so far and the then the one I I give up on the one I give up on is the one they mount a historic comeback but yeah anyways so it wasn't a double feature it was not a double feature this week no i couldn't i, I ended up not being able to go friday night see that's what messed it all up is i couldn't go friday night 
but had to go sometime yesterday because Nebraska was playing. Because yeah, and that was first place in Nebraska. Fourteen to thirteen over Rutgers. It was also the score when we lost when we lost to Illinois and what was his name West Lunt. That, that that game fourteen to thirteen, which we Nebraska oh, writers called the worst loss in Nebraska history. We won a one a one possession game. That's all I'll say. That's okay, true. we're gonna move on, and <laughs> next we're gonna go we're gonna go to Zach. Okay, Terry, uh, your story about the movie was more interesting than the movie itself. Uh, so <laughs> Amsterdam begins with a title card. Um, some of this actually happened. Great. Thanks, David O. Russell, for, for the, for the uh, adherence to verisimilitude. Really appreciate it. Uh, Christian Bale is doing his best Christian Bale in this movie. Um, when the movie gets really slow, uh, David O. Russell throws in a bit with the, the fake eye. Uh, that feels like that happens about every 10 or 15 minutes or so, almost like a B12 shot to wake up the audience. This movie's a mess. Um, and, you know, we know it's a mess because the, the release date got moved up. The, there was a critics embargo on it. Um, and the reason it's a mess is because like a lot of other David O. Russell movies, there's, it's overstuffed with characters. It's overstuffed with kind of stunt performances by actors who appear for about five minutes. And then some of them come back at the end of it. Uh, a lot of them are characters that seem pretty insignificant to the story. Um, if you had asked me and Terry said this, but what, what is, what is Chris Rock doing in this movie? I, I don't know. I don't understand uh, the uh, the best actor in the movie, Alessandro Nivola. I couldn't understand what what his role was in the movie. Mike Myers was basically just doing an imitation of his bit from Inglorious Bastards. I mean, that, that is a shameless uh, ripoff of that. Um, and basically, I think what Russell's trying to do here is kind of like what Tarantino was doing in, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He's trying to make a movie about a very serious topic, but imbuing it with his own interests and his own semi-fictional world of a story that is essentially a, a really overlong shaggy dog story. Now, the reason it worked in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is because Cliff, Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton are interesting characters, and there were some fun scenes in that, and there's some interesting interactions. This movie is completely devoid of any sort of interesting scenes, any sort of interesting dialogue. It's really DOA. Um, it's got this uh, structure that's really hard to follow. Um, it has it goes into several flashbacks, and we're not really sh- at least I wasn't totally sure why the scenes in Amsterdam had to take as long as they did to develop the fact that these are three people who knew each other at one point during World War One. Um, the the circumstances that they find themselves in are really pretty insane um, and uh, remarkable that they would meet in the same sort of way, you know, 15 years later in New York City. It was hard hard for me to believe that everybody would just randomly show up like that. Um, and I think David O. Russell says, you know, by, by midway through the movie, he's like, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm going to, you know, uh, shore up this movie a little bit, and we're going to make this a message movie. And the message movie is about January 6th. Spoiler alert. And this movie becomes a message for January 6th. Now, David O. Russell is a left-wing filmmaker. He supported left-wing, uh, you know, uh, charities and organizations, which is great. But this movie is so like heavy-handed in its metaphor for January 6th. Um, in, in that sense, it's kind of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the sense that it wants to be about something serious, like, uh, you know, Tarantino's movie was ostensibly about the Sharon Tate murders. And this movie is just uh, uh, drivel. Um, it's painful to watch. It's really unfunny. The characters are really flat. I agree with you guys about all the performances, particularly John David Washington, who... I don't know, man. Tenet and uh, Malcolm and Marie, I, I mean, I, his delivery is so flat. I don't know if he has a lot of range as an actor, if that's just a conscious choice that he makes. 
Um, some of the actors are truly awful. I felt like Emily Jr. was reading off a cue card in this movie. There's some, um, there's a subplot that involves the fact that Anya Taylor-Joy is in love with Robert De Niro. That was just so unfunny and so ridiculous. Um, by the end of the movie, in case you forgot about the message about um, courtesy and, ge and generosity and being a gung-ho American because you haven't watched, you know, a Frank Capper movie in a long time. Uh, the movie just revs it up with these speeches that are just long and and, and meandering um, and kind of pointless. And it, it, it hammers the point home um, way more than it needs to. Um, it's got the kind of Adam McKay sort of big short mentality of the you know, throw up the titles every once in a while and try to be political. At its core, this movie wants to be a Coen Brothers movie, but it lacks the charm. It lacks the wit. It lacks the good performances. Even the cinematography by Chivo, I thought in this movie was really misplaced. I mean, there's scenes where it feels like Chivo's using the Z-axis with his camera and it looks like something out of the Tree of Life or something. And it's just so misplaced for this movie. The backdrops are CGI. The costumes are lame. Everything about this movie is lame. This was a painful watch. Um, in What's interesting about this movie is that it made me have a lot more appreciation for Don't Worry Darling. Because as bad as that movie was, and you guys liked it more than I did, at least that movie was interesting. It was grounded in good performances. It made me want to know more about the, the troubled production history behind that movie. And it was never boring. Um, it was long and meandering. But this movie was boring. And the worst offense about it is that I have no interest in reading about the actual historical events, which I'm sure were important. But we're so mutated by the filmmaker and his ego that uh, I just have, have nothing left for this movie. This movie is a one-star movie. It's one of the worst movies of the year. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible. Yeah, I uh, I will say it was long. It was meandering. I don't know. I I I I got the the idea that it was trying to be political, but at the same time, if you don't try to think of it as a political movie, I I had fun with it, and that's really where I was at with it. Todd, are you going to split the difference here? Uh, well, I mean, not perfectly, but yeah, I'm in the middle somewhere. Uh... <laughs> It's okay. I don't know what Christian Bell is doing in this movie. Like he's he's part of a different movie. He is doing some early '90s Pacino impersonation. Like his line delivery is so <laughs> Glengarry Glenn Ross. It is absurd. I it's distracting and it's weird. He's totally getting a Golden Globe nomination for best actor. Um, the the flashbacks, as Zach said, they're like momentum killers. I, I don't. If the movie had anything going for it, it would completely lose it when it would cut to something else. And it's like filmed and shot like a play. It's kind of acted like a play. Everything is everyone's talking over each other and constantly cracking like bad deadpan jokes. It kind of feels like a like a poorly written Sorkin script. And it really thinks it's being like the Wolf of Wall Street with that narration over everything. It's really invasive. And it also thinks it's being clue at the same time. It's it's a it's just misdirection and like a bad reveal and like a series of cutscenes all put together into one movie. It's really it really is a mess. And but I, I, I will say De Niro is inspired casting as the former general. Like, I I, I wanted more of that character. He was really good. And, as, and, of course, Mike Myers, I wanted more of that, too. And I also one thing, I also did like the the two basically anonymous character actors, the ones that nobody's ever going to remember their name, are, of course, Matthias Schoenarts and Alessandro Nivola, and they are partners in this, which I just thought was just perfect because I was like, these guys, are, these guys are those two guys that everyone's going to always confuse with each other. Uh, the movie is interminable. It, it, it's sort of episodic, and it's a, just a misfire in all directions. And uh, it has a lot to say, but it's not smart enough to really do it. I'm I'm giving it one and a half stars. 
Although it I didn't just, watch it during a Mariners game. I was going to say, it must have just caught me on the right day because, <laughs> yeah, I was expecting, <laughs> I was kind of expecting the train wreck that you guys are saying it was and was pleasantly surprised that I was somewhat entertained by it. I think that's kind of where I was, where I was. And then, yeah, and then I was in a good mood and that, that changed it all for me too. So I will say, I did see it with about six other people and there was one guy who was, was cracking up at like every bad joke but i was just like so this is the the audience that this this is looking for one of one of the six of us is really liking this everyone else was dead silent the entire movie i don't know i i thought it was fun i thought it, it, was fun. it it's awful and i i want to say a couple of things i think so, we've been fans <laughs> of david o russell on this podcast i actually think joy is his best movie i i, I was a defender oh, that's of crazy Better i never than saw movies in the 90s Yes, I, I, I really enjoyed Joy. I actually I liked American Hustle as well. And I, I think I Heart Huckabees has its moments. I think The Fighter is his best movie. No, nah, see, I didn't I didn't love The Fighter. I, I, um, but, you know, this movie should have been just shelved. Someone should have looked at the screenplay and said, this is a mess. Why are we financing this movie? Well, it's a David O. Russell movie, so it's bound to make a profit and get Oscar nominations. But it's crap. I mean, there's there's nothing in this movie that is defensible in any way. It's a total misfire from the beginning. And like I said, even the production details are just kind of weak in this movie. Um, and, I like the score. Oh, the, the score, score was awful. The score felt oh, come like... On. It, was, score, it was different. The score was like this lighthearted, almost like sitcom-y stuff. I th- the score was awful, man. It, and they originally, I, I looked on Wikipedia, originally it was by, uh, the score was supposed to be written by the, the woman who won this, the best score for, for Joker. And that would have been so much better. I, there's, I, I actually really struggled to think of anything in this movie that I liked. Um, so why are you giving it one star? Why isn't it a zero star? Well, uh, because it's not evil like Space Jam or The Bubble. It's not, as, it's not quite that level. It's, you know... Fine, we should we should not uh, we should not support people who try to lead an insurrection. I mean, you know, woohoo! I think the thing that I really hate most about it, though, is that like, you know, more and more I'm getting bugged by I'm getting bugged by movies that tell you what to think. You know, if there was anything that we should learn from last year's Oscar race between The Power of the Dog and Coda. It's that nobody likes when people tell you what to think. That's why everybody said, "I know I'm supposed to vote for Power of the Dog, but I'm going to go with Coda," and this movie's the exact same way. It's like, it's telling you what to think. It's telling you insurrectionists are bad. Nazis are bad. Oh, and then how about the reveal? Good God. We didn't even talk about that. The reveal. Oh, awful. Laughably bad. Laughably bad. I mean, and and, then the actors must've known it at some, at some level. Right. Well, they all are phoning it in. Everyone is playing. it so dead. Like, Anya Taylor-Joy is dead in this movie. John David Washington is dead. They, They have nothing. They bring nothing to the movie. They're just famous people speaking words. I think my reaction to this movie is kind of what Terry thought of the post because I gave thumbs up to the post and I think Terry didn't like how heavy handed it was. I don't think you liked it either, Todd, but Terry in particular, I think he gave it one star. That's my reaction to this movie. I mean, I defend it, but I mean, it just. But you I know, thought no, it was fun. No one's going to be talking about this movie in, in a few months. Does David no. Russell have a career after this? I mean, this is not he the just first. got every A-lister in the world in this movie. Of course he has a career. This is I a don't... bad script that he gathered all the talent for. Of course he... A bad script he'd been working on for five years? I don't think he's really been working on it that long. Well, but I mean, he, he's, it's been five years. This is what he comes back with. I don't know. Well, that is Amsterdam. It is in theaters. I haven't checked the box office. How did... 
how did the box office turn out for, for this? I think it was second. I think we made the wrong decision, guys. We should have seen the Lyle Lyle Crocodile. Yeah, that, number that would one, be much more enjoyable. Number one, once again, was Smile at 17.6. Oh, number two, Lyle Lyle Crocodile at 11.5. Amsterdam, number three at 6.5. That's so that's what's the what's the budget on this? Oh, I don't know. Number four was Woman King at 5.3. Number five, Don't Worry Darling, 3.5. 80 million. Number six was the re-release of Avatar at 2.6. Barbarian, 2.2. Bros, 2.2. And then number nine, Terrifier 2 at 825,000. And rounding out the top 10, Top Gun Maverick in its 20th week made $800,000 at the box office. This is also like Avatar's like 40th week, so because it was re-released. Well, yeah. Additional footage at one point. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But I mean, 20th week and it's still hanging on to the top 10. That is that's just insane. OK, so I give it three stars. Todd gives it one and a half. Zach gives it one. Um, Fifty five million dollar budget on IMDb. I saw 80. All right, let's move on. That That's our featured review. It's in theaters now. If it sounds interesting, go go see it. All right. We don't have a spotlight segment, right? We do have a spotlight segment. Spotlight. We are doing the 2002 Best Picture 6 through 10 Damn draft. It, I forgot about that. <laughs> Speaking of Oscar nominations, I did my Oscar predictions. I think you oh, yes, saw you it. Uh, some interesting picks, uh, according to some people, and uh, but I'm pretty confident, as confident as I can be in October. Yes, yes. I haven't had a chance to look at that yet, but I know, I know it's out there, and uh, and I will be looking at that soon. Okay, so yeah, we're drafting 2002 Best Picture. Can we review who won the 1997 draft? Yeah, your dog doesn't want to say Your Uh, your dog wants to know. (laughs) Your dog wants to know who won. All right, let me... Well, it's not even worth looking up. Didn't we already do this on the... I don't think we did. I think we did it after the fact. I don't think we did it actually on... We'll pay this off. I can tell you who won. It was me. It it was... Well, yeah. It was it was Zach, and because Zach got his students to vote for him, we we had a total of nine votes on our poll. Absolutely Obviously, false. it was I would never tell my students <laughs> to listen to me on this. <laughs> it was it was a very uh, very spirited debate we had, um, or a competition at least. You really think my students would listen to that a 1997 Best Picture redraft? <laughs> Numbers six through ten. That's about as ge- degenerate as we can get. Pretty much. Pretty much. True. Uh, okay. So, two thousand two. This is gonna be fun. Terry's the one unprepared. Completely I'm unprepared. So, you I, didn't I, even I, remember I, it, man. Come on. I I was gonna text one of you and be like, "Hey, are we?" I mean, the Mariners' fever is contagious, but not that contagious. What were we gonna do? We were just gonna go to power rankings. That's what we did last time. Oh, our episode would be like an hour and fifteen minutes. Obviously, that's that's completely unacceptable. That's what we did last time. (laughs) 
like David O. Russell. No, my movie is going to be two hours and 20 minutes, goddammit. More All right. flashbacks in Amsterdam, please. Okay. We can delay this if you want to. No, no, <laughs> oh, no, no. no. This way more entertaining. This will be fun. This will be fun. <laughs> well, at, at least it's a good year. Like, we last time we did a horrible year for this. So, um, yeah. All right. So, draft order. It says here, uh, I just went through. And here, I'll do it. I'll do it again. So, I can show you how, how it goes through. All right. So, here's, here's draft order. Draft order is going to be... Uh, uh, Todd, Terry, Zach. Okay. Nice. So there we go. So Todd is first. Terry, Zach. I will be writing these down, keeping track. All right, Todd. So the, be- the best picture nominees were Chicago, Gangs of New York, The Hours. The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and The Pianist. Uh, one of those is not nominated for Best Director. Uh, that was Two Towers. The one that was that was not nominated for Best Picture was Talk to Her, directed by Pedro Almodovar, and that is the one I'm choosing. It was also the winner of Best Original Screenplay. Um, it's really rare to think the, that a, a screenplay winner is not a Best Picture nominee, and uh, add in the best director nomination it's obvious that was that had to be number six yeah that's a good call that's a good call um i will say it was kind of a surprise that that movie it that was a weird category that year i will say for original screenplay I think Gangs of New York was sort of the favorite going into it, but I think people realized that the weakness of the movie was the screenplay, and they weren't going to give Almodovar a whole lot more. So it was almost like... Well, I don't think it was not. It was not submitted by Spain, right? Isn't that that why it wasn't nominated for Best International Feature? Yeah, that sounds right. It's an it's an interesting pick. I you know I remember when it came out, it it definitely appeared on people's top ten lists, but I don't know if it was universally beloved in the way that there were some other two thousand two movies. It wouldn't have been my first pick, but logically on paper it makes sense. All right, I have the next pick here, and I'm gonna go with uh, the movie I just watched last week, Far From Heaven. Uh, it was not nominated for Best Picture. However, it did have the uh, it did have a best actress nomination. It had a best screenplay nomination, um, and uh, which are two big, big ones to have. Its star was also um, was a double nominee that year, so you have that. It had that going for it, so it was just kind of in in people's uh, periphery a lot more. And it's an amazing movie, and I think it would uh, in ten. I think it had. I mean, Todd went with Talk to Her, which is like, you know, if a foreign film was going to get in and be Talk to Her, and yes, it was a screenplay winner and everything, but I think Far From Heaven is the one that you could say that is like the the shoe-in. If there were 10, that was obviously going to be in the 10. Yeah, hard to argue. That was my next choice. Man, you guys are making this easy. I would have never picked that. That might have been my fourth or fifth pick, but I mean, neither of those movies were even nominated at the Golden Globes. Like, what are you guys talking about? 
Far From Heaven was like a niche art movie sort of considered and it got some Oscar nominations, but it didn't have the it was an art house movie. It wasn't going to it was never going to get Best Picture nomination. All right, Zach. Well, you got two back to back picks here. Tell us what you're going with. Well, I got my number one and two picks. So you guys made it easy for me. My number one pick is Adaptation. I mean, it's a movie that got, you know, an Oscar nominated Nicolas Cage. Uh, uh, Chris Cooper won the Oscar. Meryl Streep won the Golden Globe. They both won Golden Globes for it. It's a movie that got a lot of critical praise. People were thinking at the time that maybe being John Malkovich was overlooked by the Oscars. I remember it being pretty surprised that it wasn't nominated for Best Picture uh, the morning that they announced the Oscars. And of course, it's offbeat. It's, it's you know, obviously an ambitious movie that maybe a lot of people didn't quite understand. But I mean, it got it got it got the Golden Globe love and it got the critical love. And it's not often that you see movies um, do do both of those things. I think it was on Ebert's number three movie of 2002. And those movie, those five were solid. Which one which best picture of any wouldn't have gone in favor of adaptation? Uh, well, I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm just saying what would be six. Right. Isn't that isn't that what I know? But you said you were surprised that he didn't get nominated. I was just curious what where you thought it would fit in. I don't know, man. You'd have to go back 20 years. I just remember being kind of surprised that it didn't, I guess maybe just, um, you know, more, uh, I don't know, abstractly. I was, I guess I was okay. just surprised. I, I don't know. My number two pick, I'm going to go with about Schmidt, um, movie that also got, uh, Jack Nicholson won the golden globe for best, uh, actor in a drama, um, got the Oscar nomination. I think some people have him pegged for winning best actor that night at the Oscars obviously didn't happen. By a filmmaker that, again, the Oscars had uh, respected or at least had been, you know, acknowledged in, in awards going up to that point. Um, you know, did, was Kathy Bates nominated as well, I think? Um, yeah, there was only two of the two actor nominations. Okay, well, um, in any event, uh, I that, like, again, a movie that got critical praise, came out at just the right time, kind of a feel-good movie, kind of in the as-good-as-it-gets territory, but um, maybe with even a little bit more critical acclaim in that movie, so... I think that it, it, it's aged well with the with the pedigree of the filmmakers too. Solid pick. Those were my five and nine choices. So, ooh, okay, all right. I'm debating between two here. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go. Catch me if you can. Um. That's a good pick. I was going to pick that if it came back to me. It, it's, I mean, it's Spielberg. So, you know, it, it's got to be close. Uh, it did have, I think it only had the one nomination, but it's, like I said, it, it's a Spielberg movie. Spielberg it has been, three nominations. Did it? Okay. Well, one it's above the line. Score, it was nominated for, was it, maybe it's a score and sport and actor. I don't know. Let me, let me. That seems right. Here. Not nominated for screenplay somehow, but yeah, just just the two. However, it's it's one of those that just feels like this is the type of movie that would get in, uh, even if that was its only halt was supporting actor score. It's a Spielberg movie; it's going to get nominated. So it certainly had an Oscar push that year. I mean, it came out I want to say like Christmas, and obviously DreamWorks. It was DreamWorks's prestige movie of that award season, but I think it was kind of lightly regarded. Why are we always talking at Christmas? All right. So that's what I'm going with. Todd, you got back-to-back -back picks. Uh, I'm 
Okay, I'm going with uh, my big fat Greek wedding. That was the other one I was thinking. It is uh, the box office sensation, Oscar nominee for best original screenplay. These kind of things, when they were, when they expanded the lineup, these are the ones that sort of like the A Serious Man kind of thing or whatever. Like the the screenplay achievement was nominated for picture, regardless. I mean, A Serious Man was obviously not a box office movie, but yeah, uh, I think that's a pretty clear populist pick that would would have made it if there were ten nominees. And my next choice is the um, Oscar winner for best documentary and Bowling for Columbine. I think if there was ever a, a nominee from a do- for a documentary, it would be Bowling for Columbine. Uh, it won. It was nominated for best screenplay at like Writers Guild. I think if like I mean it, it just had all of the things that were checking the boxes. It just couldn't get into five. I think it would probably have been like seven or eight um, if it had a if there had been ten nominees. It's, it's not a bad call. Not a bad call. All right. That because so it. many documentaries have been nominated for Best Picture. Well, that's why that's why I said if if it were to happen, this would be how where, where it would happen. I get that. All right. Well, that's the that's the question. Is that are we talking about 2022 voters today, or are we talking about the two thousand? Because my understanding is we're talking about voters twenty years ago. Yeah. And I think voters 20 years ago were still kind of scared of Bowling for Columbine. I think voters today would probably, yeah, put it six through 10, but I think it was considered too controversial for 2002. But I'm I'm pretty sure it like it was nominated or won the Writers Guild for Best Original Screenplay. Like, I mean, I, if that, yeah, it, it was a winner of Best Original Screenplay at the Writers Guild of America for film, not just for documentary. Like, I mean, if that doesn't say that it's had appeal of more than just being a documentary, then I don't, I don't know what else you could claim i guess an editing nomination or something would have been nice but all right i'm up next and uh i'm gonna go i mean it might be a little bit out on a limb but i don't think it is i'm gonna go with frida I feel like that's a movie that it's it's an artistic piece it had a nomination for best actress um, I don't think it got in anywhere else, which is kind of surprising considering just the type of movie it was. Uh, it had, uh, I believe it had the Miramax push behind it. Um, oh, it won. No, I was wrong. It got in other places. It won, two, it won two, actually. See, this is how, this is what happens when you're not prepared. Uh, yeah, it, it had multiple score, It won, uh, makeup. Nominated yeah, one for score, direction. one makeup, actress, art direction, costume design, original song. Yeah, this has got a pedigree to be an Oscar nominee or a Best Picture nominee. So, uh, Frida, that's my pick. Not bad. It was definitely in the Miramax movie that year. Well, what one of several Miramax movies. Yeah. All right, Zach, you got back-to-backs. Okay, my next pick, I'm going to go with the animation winner, which is Spirited Away, a movie that was beloved and heralded at the time. Um, first anime movie to win best uh, animated film. Let's see. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it must have beat a, uh, Di- a Disney Pixar movie at some or something. Let's see. Uh, I think it was a Pixar movie that year. Beat out Lilo and Stitch and Ice Age, two pretty yeah. big box office movies. So um, that was a movie that again uh, was on a lot of critics' top top lists. And then um, I guess I can. I, I'm going to go a little bit 
uh, outside uh, the norm here. It didn't get a lot of nominations, but I'm not sure why 25th Hour uh, wouldn't be wouldn't have been considered on um, number six through ten. It, you know, it was a movie that got a big push, and we did a deep dive of it. Uh, we all love it on this podcast. It came out, got good reviews. Maybe Touchstone botched the Academy campaign for it, but um, I, I think that a lot of critics probably liked it. It just, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm just gonna put it out there because we all love it. It was nominated for score at the Golden Globes and no Oscar nominations. That'd be interesting if we had a movie that was only nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. I mean, I mean, I'm looking at some of these other movies that got Oscar nominations, and I just, you know, they're kind of niche movies. We've covered kind of the major ones. Um, I think 25th Hour had more more appeal, more box office, and more um, critical love than you know even some of these other movies that are still out there. Is that a box office? I think so. I mean, 23 million. I don't think 25th Hour gets in simply because the Academy seemed to be afraid of Spike Lee for a while there. And yeah, but I mean, 25th Hour is an ode to New York City. Like, yeah, right after 9 11. It's about as you know gung ho patriotic as you're ever going to expect out of Spike Lee. And but if Edward Norton's not getting nominated, the movie is never getting nominated. Well, yeah, that's why it's my number four, and not my number one. But you know, I think it's a movie that that had a big push at at the time of its release and has obviously aged well. By the way, uh, ranked uh, number one hundred thirty one of two thousand two box office, um, <laughs> closely behind uh, Far From Heaven. All right. Well, I'm next. Uh, my next pick, I'm going to go with one that definitely has, kind of similar to my last one, definitely has a pedigree that would have gotten it a Best Picture nomination for several reasons. I'm going with Road to Perdition. Yeah, uh, that was my next choice. You've got a uh, you've got a career achievement nomination for Paul Newman and supporting actor. It won cinematography, nominated for art direction, sound, sound editing, score. Not to mention the follow-up movie to a Best Picture, Best Director winner in Sam Mendes. Um, it, it's one of those that just feels like whether it deserved it or not, it was going to it it would would get in in a in a year of ten, just to to show that it needed to be in. A justification nomination. It's a good choice. The problem is it opened like in May, I think. I mean, it, it was a very early release that year. Oh, July, excuse me. Uh, so it was not really an Oscar, certainly not released in the Oscar season. Yeah. I remember seeing that movie in the theater and being somewhat disappointed by it. I, I remembering back on it, it's fairly forgettable, but. And everybody just remembers I... it today as Conrad Hall's last film. And I think it's it's more notable of that than anything else. Yeah. Todd, back-to-back picks. Uh, so the next one I have on my rankings, I have Minority Report, which is the other Spielberg movie and probably the one that's more universally liked. Uh, and it was a big box office movie, Tom Cruise. It, it probably was not getting nominated, but... Um, it's the best option, I think. I think I had one nomination below the line, but it's a Spielberg movie. And if you look at it now, like all Spielberg movies, even his trashy movies like Bridge of Spies get nominated for Best Picture and War Horse and all the garbage. So Minority Report definitely could have gotten in. And my uh, last choice, I'm going, my next, my, my next highest is Spider-Man. 
I, I, I think Spider-Man was a landmark movie. It had uh, the monster box office, and I think it pretty much set the stage for the M- like the MCU and all of superhero movies. I, if if the if they were looking for ratings, which they, I guess they didn't necessarily need to in 2002, but if they were, having Spider-Man nominate would have been uh, kind of an easy choice. If the, yeah, if that's a good pick, if they were gonna, if they were gonna nominate a movie like that, that'd be the one it would nominate. I know, Todd, your yours is looking kind of like mine ended up looking like last time that everyone trashed on. You went with the very populist picks to to end it out. I didn't pick Hercules. <laughs> well, that's true. That'd be like picking Ice Age. Well, uh, fine, whatever. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. Like the, those ones, but I did have those ranked high. Like I'm not not just like throwing that out there. Although there are a couple that I still think are decent choices. All right. You got to remember that 20 years ago, the Oscar voters cared more back then than they do today about the uh, appearance of prestige. You know, The Hours is a perfect 2002 Oscar voter movie. So I would agree with possibly minority report just by virtue of the critical consensus about it but i there i don't think there would have been any way now obviously today things are different but i don't see any way they would have nominated they, they would have been as populous as to nominate a blockbuster comic book movie that came out in may i mean at 90 percent rotten tomatoes it wasn't like it was just it kind of advanced the medium but yeah it's it definitely it's not prestigious all right, well, I'm next. And for my last pick, there's something missing that none of us have said so far. And that is every time we have a best picture lineup, and it was actually missing this year, there's always the token British movie. And we don't have a token British movie, uh, especially, I mean, token British movie and token British comedy kind of throw fills in that role even better. There is one nominated for best screenplay that year. I'm going with About a Boy. That's yeah. a good one. That would uh, be my my next to my next pick. Yeah, that was my my next one. We've actually almost covered the fifteen I wrote down. So nice. Well, the problem is it was, it was rounded out. It was early in the year. I mean, you guys are listing movies that got critical consensus, but they were it was just too early in the year. If the full Monty can get into Best Picture, then About a Boy can get into Best Picture. About a Boy does seem a little small. Like that that had to be a surprise screenplay nomination. That, that, that doesn't feel at all like an Oscar nominated. Then what else is going to be the British the British comedy movie? Well, Stephen Daldry is British. Sure. Isn't that does that's, that count for anything? That's true. Nicole that's Kidman true. is Australian, so there we go. I bet I bet forty percent of Oscar voters that year thought The Hours was a British movie. <laughs> all right, Zach, wrap us up. All right, I'm going to go with one that I feel strongly about, although you guys are not going to agree with me, but you had to be there, okay? 2002, great time in the world. Uh, I'm going to go with Antoine Fisher because that movie, when it came out, was considered a big directorial debut of Denzel Washington, the reigning best actor from the year before. Obviously, the Academy loved him. Uh, Antoine Fisher got mostly good reviews. Ebert really praised it. and it didn't get at a whole lot of box office performance. It was released, I think, like December 19th. It was right in the in the mix. Um, but it was kind of, it just was sort of forgotten. And I'm not really sure why. It had a great um, it had two great stories going for it. 
which was that uh, the real life Antoine Fisher was like a security guard at Paramount or something. And he tried to sell his script for 10 years. A great human interest story. And then it was the first kind of breakout role for Derek Luke uh, as well. So I remember being surprised that the movie didn't get more of a push. I'm not really sure why, uh, but it's actually a pretty good movie. I remember really liking it. Um, early appearance, by the way, by Viola Davis. And um, it's a uh, I, I, today it would it would be unthinkable if that movie wouldn't at least get a, a Golden Globe nomination. But uh, I think I, you guys maybe you know you had you had to be there. I remember in 2002. I said I'm very patronizing, but you know. It, it seemed like going into Oscar season that that was going to be a contender. And I think it was a little surprising to a lot of people that it wasn't. That was That's... not in my top 15. Hey, but I, I like your, I like your justification for it. I just, maybe it's just a me thing. When I saw it, when I was 15 years old, I was like, damn, it's a good movie. It's inspirational. It's uplifting. It's based on a true story. It's with an Oscar, a recent Oscar winner. Like, why won't this movie get, you know some oscar attention and like somewhat like 25th hour maybe uh it simply did not maybe it was the skin color of the directors i don't know but it just did not get uh get the attention it deserved sadly all right well todd you said we almost got through your whole list what was still on it uh my 14 and 15 uh were still on it there was itumama tambien which probably was never getting nominated it was a screenplay nominee but that was very much the only reason i had it on there and we were soldiers is exactly the kind of movie that fits into Oscar races. Even though it wasn't directed by Mel, it was uh, starring him and uh, directed by his screenwriter on Braveheart. I think that 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 had that, that was like a probably a five to one. It was getting nominated or something. I'm kind that's of shocked. A, that's another good random stab. I'm kind of shocked we didn't go with the Quiet American after just dissing Terry on it. I mean, he's right there. Michael Caine, he's right there. Well, Zach's two movies are the two that weren't in my top 15, so. You know. All right. And we didn't mention Punch Drunk Love either. I was never getting in. It probably wasn't getting in, but, you know, I, it wouldn't have been shocking for one of us to mention it, maybe. I, I love I love how 2002, there's all these movies that we love that had no, no shot at any Oscars, but they're amazing movies. That's what makes it such a fun year. All right, so this list here, uh, here's our draft, and I'll put this out there once the once the podcast is out. So Todd drafted Talk to Her, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Bowling for Columbine, Minority Report, and Spider-Man. Then I that yeah. Then I drafted Far From Heaven, Catch Me If You Can, Frida, Road to Perdition, and About a Boy. I think objectively mine's a better list there. Um and then <laughs> well, and then know. Zach. Zach drafted Adaptation, About Schmidt, Spirited Away, 25th Hour, and Antoine Fisher. I think I think Twitter's going to objectively think that mine's the best list this time. No, but you didn't. I mean, but Zach won because he put in Boogie Nights, which had, was never getting nominated for Best Picture, so, and Jackie Brown. So Yeah, he went, he went for the populist picks. And he won. I didn't he get did any win. votes, and I was the one that had the best pick. <laughs> with the wings of the dove but okay we'll see i think there's something to maybe there's something to being like the second pick because zach was the second pick last time and had a great draft yeah you definitely have the the oscary movies mm, i don't know i feel like terry you went with movies that you really like and that's and, and todd went with a movie he really liked his i mean it's like 
I don't know. I Oscar voters cared about prestige. That's why I never would have picked Spider-Man. I never would have picked Minority Report. At that time, the Oscar was very much about being gatekeepers of culture and elitism. So, so my first pick had four nominations and won one. My second pick was Spielberg. My third pick had two wins and six nominations. My fourth pick had one win and six nominations. And my fifth pick was a British screenplay nominee. Yeah, I think Terry, you're the second. You're you're the second best list. I'll give you that. <laughs> Hey, I had a Spielberg movie. I had the best original screenplay winner, which was nominated for director. I had the maybe the most popular documentary of all time at the Oscars, and uh, the box office sensation. I'm a big my big pet Greek wedding. I don't know, you know. I think Todd, Todd's list would be like good for 2022 voters, but not voters back in the day. I don't know. I mean, they've never nominated a documentary, man. What what would make you think they would have that year? A, a controversial documentary that dared to it say won original it, screenplay. If it critical would, of the United States post 9-11. It would have gotten nominated for screenplay if it was eligible with the Oscars. All right. Well, that's our list. Uh, tell us what you think when I put Come up on, a poll. students. You know I, I'm giving you extra credit. <laughs> Give me those votes. Oh, we'll see what we can get this time. All right. Now, now we're moving on to power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And Zach won. Zach, tell us what we're doing. Uh, I'm not really sure why I went with this category. If I'm, I'm, being totally honest. I'm not either. But it's a fun one. We're doing best scenes involving motorcycles in movie or TV or video game. And um, the impetus for this list that I did make up after I made it was that uh, the movie Tar is coming out in a couple weeks. And Tar is something that motorcycles go on. So um, I think that... Uh, when I was thinking about the list, I was like, okay, I, I may have been watching a movie with a motorcycle in it. Um, that might be appearing on my list. But uh, the more I thought about it, I was like, well, you know, there's there's several movies. I'm going to be pretty open-minded um, in the words of, of Captain Renault and Casablanca. Uh, I'm going to consider Vespas. I'm going to consider, um, you know, any sort of motorized uh, vehicle that is not a car. So motorcycles are the primary focus, but uh, I'm okay if it's uh, something a little bit different as well. All right. I hated this list. I, it, I don't know. It, it, it kept expanding the more I thought about it. I was like, okay, yeah, I have my five. I was like, oh, shit. I, got, I completely <laughs> forgot about this whole other category of like things I could think about. There's some good ones for sure. You just you had to think about it. You know, it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I like it challenges. Was a challenge. You know, like so much of our power rankings are just, you know, oh, that's the name. No, you actually have to think about a movie that involves a scene in a motorcycle. That's not easy to do. Or maybe it is. I don't know. Obviously, for Terry, it's not. I mean, I could think of some, but I. My my list is like with with honorable mentions is nine. So oh, yeah, I what I more honorable of. mentions than that. <laughs> I, well then I, this is going to be one of those where as we go along I'm going to be like oh crap I could have said that so anyways let's right, get kick started. us off Terry I'm kicking us off oh crap okay I'll kick us off you're, you're gonna you're gonna love love how I'm kicking this off 
Uh, my number five uh, goes back to a movie that we did a deep dive of. Uh, and it, it, we did a deep dive a couple years ago. It was my pick. Uh, it may have inspired one of our category names. Uh, I'm going with Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, and <laughs> Pee Wee at the there. Biker Bar. Um, <laughs> so, so first, there's him knocking over all of the motorcycles like that were all lined up. He knocked over like 20 motorcycles all at once. He goes into the biker bar, gets on, gets it into his platform shoes, does his tequila dance and uh, gets in their good graces. Then they give him a motorcycle and he drives off and immediately drives into a billboard. Um, it's a, uh, it's a beautiful scene. It's one of the first ones I thought of. Like when I'm, when I was thinking of like scenes with a motorcycle in it, I could just I, I just pictured Pee Wee like being like I'm cool because I have a motorcycle and a leather jacket, and then he doesn't know how to ride a motorcycle and drives into a billboard. So uh, yeah, my number five is Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Tequila. Fantastic. <laughs> that's what that's what you're getting this time. That's what you're getting. Oh, it's gonna get more random than that. <laughs> All right. Well, Todd, tell us how random we're getting. All right. Uh, my number five is the the motocross sequence in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Uh, right. Because it is just, it's a sick sequence. There's like this assassin going after the boy, which you find out is Shia LaBeouf's character. And then, like, I think there should be more motocross chase sequences because, like, they're just, like, thrill seekers. There's endless possibilities. Like, Animal Kingdom had a bunch of these uh, uh, in, in the show. But then, but, uh, then you get Crispin Glover's character, a creepy thin man. He's like ripping off a handful of Dylan's hair while they're in midair and smelling it all creepily. It's just McG in all of his slow motion, ridiculous glory. And there's like a guy uh, who's like upside down. He releases both hands off his bike and starts shooting back at, at them. And there's also someone who switches bikes midair. It, it's glorious. It's a, it's a fantastic sequence. And, you know, motocross is, is a motorcycle. So there you go. I'm surprised you remember anything about Charlie's Angels Full Throttle because I don't really remember anything about that movie. I saw that in the theater. Uh, I remember. And... I remember you saw. It, I remember which theater you saw it at, like the AMC, like in, around in the... the University Place. Yeah, that yeah. does not exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, I've seen that movie a lot actually, and that's low key <laughs> uh, movie you probably should deep dive next year. Oh, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is why we do it, man. This is why this is a great (laughs) list. All right, Zach, number five. All right, I'm starting out with my Tarantino pick at number five. Um, I'm not going to go with Zed's Dead. uh, To me, that's one of the weaker parts of the movie. And and the worst character in Pulp Fiction is uh, uh, Butch's girlfriend, Fabiana. I'm not going to go with any scene with Fabiana. I'm sorry, Maria de Medeiros. Uh, So I'm going to go with uh, my other pick, which was Kill Bill Volume 1. The scene with the bride driving through the streets of Tokyo, clad in that uh, beautiful yellow uh, motorcycle. Uh, she's headed to track down the crazy 88s and Orenishi. Um, she's got the helmet on. This was in the trailer when that movie came out. I remember, you know, at several of these 2002 movies, the Kill Bill trailer was uh, unbelievable. I mean, it got everybody jacked up. 
And uh, seeing the bride, uh, you know, just rip off her helmet on that blazing yellow bike was just a great kind of uh, introduction to the character. Great uh, setup to one of the greatest fighting sequences of all time versus the Crazy 88s. It just gets it gets your juices going, and that's a, that's the great one of the great purposes of a, of a good motorcycle scene is to get people excited. Definitely considered. Yeah, I I, uh, I eventually remembered remembered that one, but I did not put it on my list. <laughs> Battle without honor or humanity is the song, and uh, it's it's a good one. It should be played at more college football games. Maybe it would have helped us yesterday. Terry's still working on his list. Did you forget no, I've about got my list. I've got my too? list. Okay. No, no, I've got my list here. All right, let's move baseball. on. Watch, I'm watching baseball. Three nothing San Diego right now. There um, go. Screw the Mets. Screw the Mets. All right, my number four is uh, possibly uh, it, it's like the only movie on my list that's actually about motorcycles, uh, and it is. It's a movie that at first I thought when I first watched it, I felt it was fairly forgettable. And then it turned into like, I don't know. I kind of secretly love this movie. And I don't really know why. It's the world's fastest Indian with Anthony Hopkins. Nice. Where he takes this like old rundown motorcycle, takes it to the to the salt flats and sets like a land speed record with it. Um he's this uh he's this new zealander that goes to america with his old raggedy rebuilt indian motorcycle and and sets a land record with it. it it's pretty amazing it's a great um it's it's a fascinating movie and again i don't even know why i like it so much but for some reason i i hold on to this one and him setting the land record that uh it, it's a pr- it's some pretty great scenes watching him uh, him ride his bike. So uh, my number four, world's fastest Indian. So is that just a scene from the movie or the whole movie? I mean, the whole movie <laughs> is about it, but the the scene where he actually sets the record is the scene. Like I couldn't pick. I was gonna pick Easy Rider, but I can't remember the scene. I just like, isn't that the whole movie? Like they're on the bike. I mean, that's true. I haven't seen Easy Rider. But yeah, the whole movie is either him working on his bike or him on his bike. But yeah, the scene where he actually sets the record is pretty great. All right, Todd, number four. All right, uh, my number four, believe it or not, this is the first time I've ever used sideways in one of these. Uh, I'm using the scene where Stephanie attacks Jack. <laughs> and um, Jack it has, starts out, he's got that giant stuffed bear or badger or whatever it is. It's comically too big is what it is, but it, whatever it is. And um, her motorcycle is actually a really weird part of the movie because she doesn't really seem like the type, but I mean, I mean, but you are a bad girl, Stephanie. And so maybe she does ride a motorcycle, but uh, she smacks him with the helmet. She throws it at him, which probably caused more pain than the actual smack. And then she storms off on her bike without a helmet, which is a little weird. You know, face, you too. Me? I don't know. I, I also thought about the scene where Jack has to make a phone call. Uh, and while she's outside on the bike, which is a better scene, but this is more motor, like, but this is probably less motorcycle centric, even. I don't know. I don't know. This is what I chose. Stephanie Chuck's Jack and Sideways. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I had, had completely forgot about that, but it's perfect. All right. Zach, number four. I'm just going to audible and, uh, well, 
that originally was on my list, but I'm going to say that I, I'm I'm glad it got representation. So I'm going to say a different <laughs> scene, um, even though that's obviously a great one. And one of the reasons why I made this list was thinking about that scene. Um, I'm going to go with the opening of Speed 2 Cruise Control, which I don't believe you guys <laughs> have seen or are fans of. So I, let me just elaborate. In the world of Speed 2, uh, Keanu Reeves' character Jack uh, broke up with Annie because, in the words of Annie, uh, he was too focused on, on his job as a SWAT team officer. So the beginning of Speed 2 is Jason Patrick, the new beau in her life, as he's chasing, and I shit you not, an ice cream truck down the Santa Monica, or not Santa Monica uh, freeway, but on the, the Pacific Highway freeway next to the ocean. And the, the ice cream truck is throwing out boxes, and he's, he, he's uh, you know, speed racer style, dodging them left and right. And you got that great Yandy Bont infused, like MTV style, like close ups of the bike, like leaping off a cliff for no reason. It's just a wonderful way to open the movie. It's utterly ridiculous. Jason Patrick looks uh, not right for the role at all. You do see Officer McMahon there, a bald Officer McMahon who's lost his hair since the first movie. Um, but, you know, he's a biker. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he, has, he has a need for speed, adrenaline. It's a great opening to a great movie. Is it as good as. What button did you push, Bob, from the original movie? No, nothing can be uh, better than the 20th best movie of all time. But it's a great way to open um, a solid and underrated sequel that if, if I had my way, we'd be deep diving this year. Never seen never it. Seen, never seen it. Yeah, I know. That's why it's stupid yeah. to mention it. I'm someone out there. Tell me I'm wrong. Speed 2 is an underrated movie. I got two thumbs up from Siskel and Ebert. Great uh, villain. I, I would go with Willem Dafoe is better in that movie as a villain than he is in Spider-Man. And it has a solid opening chase scene on a motorcycle. All right. We'll just there trust, we go. trust me. That sounds like a bad idea. Number, <laughs> number three. For me, I'm going... I'm going classic here. Well, comedy classic. We're here. <laughs> it's Dumb and Dumber. Uh, they they yes. ride in. They ride into Aspen on their little uh, on their call. little scooter. I get thirty miles to the gallon on this hog. Um, seventy. Seventy, whatever it was. It was a lot. And uh, yeah. And then they cut. So the, wait, you're talking about the scene where he brings it? They totally I, redeem no, yourself scene. I I was gonna go with when they actually get there, and they you see the snot frozen to their face, um, and then and you could kind of take like the the montage leading up to it of them going and and he's like letting go of the handlebars for a little bit and swallowing bugs along the way, and and then they get there and they they're uh, they're frozen solid and like. Um, uh, Harry can't get off of Lloyd's back when he, they get off because he's so frozen and he, they just fall over when he gets off. Uh, so uh, so that's what I'm going with. But yes, there's a, there's several things in there. Honorable mention is also uh, another scene where uh, where motorcycle cop Harland Williams uh, uh, yeah. comes up to the shagging wagon and um, and you've been sipping on grandma's cough medicine. Uh, that's a uh, that's honorable yeah. mention. I had both of those honorable mention too. And that was the part that I was like, should I completely for like spaced on motorcycle cops until like <laughs> I had already <laughs> completed my list twice. And I'm like, you know what? Screw it. <laughs> I'm not going down that route. Uh, all right. Great choice, Terry. Thank you. Thank you. Todd, number three. 
my number three is a movie we have done a deep dive of. Um, it is uh, the Fast and the Furious when they are chasing down uh, the the guys who killed Jesse. Um, you get to see Dom's yes. big muscle car in action, and they're chasing you know Johnny Tran and Lance on their bikes. It's an awesome like random Michael Bay esque destruction of property scene that they probably movie probably could have used more of, and they got some in the other movies. Um, the stunts in the scene are actually pretty legit. There's a lot of like jumps and the real it's kind of realistic too, physics wise. They're like really acrobatic things, and like I, I think if, if and the if the bike lands like kind of sideways, it actually does crash. It, it doesn't last that long because like you get clipped and you actually do wipe out. It's it's a really cool scene and um, it's it's sort of a triumphant scene too. And it's basically the end of the movie. Yeah, chasing after Jesse's killers. There you go. It's a great one. I had forgotten about that one. Yeah, those but guys yes. are always on motorcycles and. Now that you part. now that you mention it, yeah, that that is one. As I as I was sitting in sitting there trying to think, what do I think of when I think of this? And that that was that was one that was in my head that I couldn't I couldn't put my pinpoint, but that was one. All right, gotcha. Zach, number three. Uh, I'm gonna go. Num- my number three is the kids are all right. Um, and again, wow. I don't know if there's a specific scene per se, I think, but the character of Mark Ruffalo in that movie rides a motorcycle and which is a big plot point in the movie, because as the sperm donor father, uh, he's trying to reestablish a relationship with, uh, Mia Vosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosfosf
especially the Top Gun Maverick one, because you know, sixty-year-old Tom Cruise is on that bike without a helmet, riding at like hundred miles an hour, just going for it. It's like, dude, you're insane. But okay, uh, yeah. So uh, that's my number two. Yeah, they, they apparently in Top Gun Maverick they did that scene several times, and every time he got more excited to do it. And, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. All right, Todd, number two. All right, this is where we we get a little bit more serious. Uh, this this was previously mentioned on uh, movie and TV Karens, bathroom scenes, and the use of song in movie and TV. It's uh in Breaking Bad when uh Todd shoots Drew Sharp, which is, I mean, th- th- it starts out with the elation of pulling off the train heist and then devastation because everyone knows it's about to all go to shit. And Drew shows up on his little motorbike, and uh, may or may not understand what what ha- what's going on. And Todd takes it into his own hands, shoots a little kid. Jesse's broken. It's one of those scenes in the show that made it so haunting and emotionally just brutal. Once I thought of it, I had to put it on because it's, it's, I mean, it, 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 it that is one that will stick with you. And the kid's on a bike. I don't know. Yeah. Even you saying it there, I, I had to think for a second, was that a dirt bike or was that a bicycle? But you're right. It's a, it's a little dirt bike thing. Yeah. Good call. Call. I'm just gonna so, get rid of the suspense. It's my number two as well. That's it's a great call. Wow. Dead Freight is my favorite episode of the entire series, so I had to put it on my list. And what that that episode is brilliant because it's um it works in terms of the character building, but you can also really watch it as a standalone episode. You don't really have to know what's going on at that point in the series because it's a heist. It's one of the greatest heists ever, certainly on TV, but really in any sort of narrative form. And that ending. Wow. I mean, there's so many great endings to episodes of Breaking Bad, but that has to be the most shocking ending, the most violent moment maybe of the whole series. Uh, just an absolutely nuts moment. And it's a perfect payoff because the motorcycle is in the first scene of that episode as well, the cold open, and you have no idea how that's connected at all to the story. And it's just brilliant the way that Vince Gilligan tied it together. So it's obviously a great pick. One of the reasons I wanted to come up with this list I have a feeling I might know what your number one is too, Todd. So I think we're simpatico. So uh, my first time watching Breaking Bad, for whatever reason, I stopped at that episode. And I don't know why, but I stopped. Crazy? I know. (laughs) the best episode of the series. And then uh, then came back to it. And then I I think I started over at that point because I'd stopped at that episode and uh, started over and then finished. And then went and watched it with my wife and we stopped at that episode and I don't know why. And then took like three years off from it. And now we're back to it. And guess what? That was the last episode we watched. And it's been like a week and a half since we've watched it just this week. We didn't have, we didn't get time to watch it. So we're going to try We'll watch it again this week. Like we, we have like one night. So she still doesn't know the ending. She still doesn't know (laughs) the ending. No, she doesn't. (laughs) But now she, like, she couldn't even remember. It had been so long. She had no idea how that how that episode ended. And so uh, and then it happened and she went, oh, oh, oh. And the, the only thing that she knew is like the first time uh, Todd pops up when they're bugging the first house. She goes, Todd. That's a significant character, isn't it? It's like, maybe. <laughs> I mean, his name is Todd. So do you know how many other power rankings this episode would appear on for me? I mean, it would also be the best trains best uses of spiders best movie todds 
best uh, Jesse Plemons performances, most shocking endings of anything, maybe. Best Bill Burr performances. Well, I think it was the best only Bill time. Burr, I think I was the only one that had it on bathroom scenes where where he sees the WW. No, this this episode. No, the, this okay, episode. Yeah, that, just that episode. Oh. He's saying this episode. Dead oh. Freight specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Best best uh, storylines involving methylamine. It's got to be up there. At least cuts, nope. cuts the top five. Best shovel scenes. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, would this would this be, in best shovel scenes would this beat out Jesse uh, conning his way into the meth house? <laughs> what are you doing? No, that's probably <laughs> better. <laughs> yeah, okay. what, for what? A... I think you know. <laughs> <laughs> Want to give me a break, man? I got to go. That is a great scene. It is a great scene. That future like, power ranking. He's like, That's... I know, I know meth heads. <laughs> I know how to get in there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's when Mike finally goes, like, this kid knows what he's doing. All right. Uh my number one. All right. This might be this might be insane. This is insane, but I'm going with it because I don't know. It's my list. And I was having trouble coming up with stuff. And the the best thing I could come up with for number one. This is the first time I've ever had a video game on my list, and it is my number one. You're not uh, supposed and... to have video games number one. <laughs> no, you can you can have one. You can have one, and it doesn't say we never said it couldn't be number one. I'm putting it number one, okay. and it is Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Um, Zach knows what I'm talking about because I used to do this constantly in college. Mm-hmm. Whenever we needed something to just pass the time. I would start a brand new game on Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. I would steal a motorcycle and there was a spot. There was this one spot where you could uh, just because all the other islands were like blocked off. There was this one spot where if you drove it just right off the side of the bridge, you could jump the gap. And as soon as you jump the gap, instant five stars. And I would run and see how far I could get. And I would go usually get all the way to the mountain, get to the top of the mountain parachute off the mountain pick up another another motorcycle and keep going uh i i got out of los santos i mean that that would get you out of los santos but i got all the way to the other side of san fierro one time even jumping off the mountain and helicopter shooting at my parachute um when i was thinking as soon as i heard that video games could be part of the list nothing quite beats uh running from the cops on the part of the game you're not supposed to be in yet in GTA San Andreas. It's even better if you get one of those, what like a PSX 900 or whatever those those bikes were called, the super, super fast ones. Nothing could catch up to you at that point. But uh, yeah, that had to be my number one. I remember like driving a bike and slamming into the barrier and going over so I could run into Las Venturas and play blackjack. But, <laughs> you know, that's been a long time. Yeah, it's an interesting pick, Terry. Obviously, a great pick. I just, I thought you were going to say just, just going off the mountain, which, uh, for functional video game illiterates like me, was challenge enough. I actually preferred driving the buses off the mountains or like the big, you know, fire trucks or something like that. But the motorcycle was fun. But see, see, driving off the mountain was so much better if you'd been at five stars the entire time and got to the top of the mountain with five stars on you, picked up the parachute. And then still got off the mountain because, like, if you're if you're on like driving up that mountain with five stars on you, somehow there's all these cop cars falling down the mountain at you. 
I don't know how it works, but you know, that that's how the game happens. And so, uh, yeah. And then motor or helicopters trying to fly into your, your parachute as you're flying down, trying to make sure you land as close as possible to a vehicle so you can get right in and keep going. Um, it, it's yeah. My favorite, my favorite bit of media involving a motorcycle GTA San Andreas. It's pretty amazing. I might go do it as soon as we're done here. We'll see. It's kind of, it's, it's a great pick. It's also kind of a sad pick. The, the <laughs> best, most thrilling moment involving a motorcycle is not in a movie, but in a video game. But my, my I, I number think two is would be a little too. ashamed. I, 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 if my number two had to be my number one, I, I wouldn't be upset either. So. All right, Todd, number one. Uh, my number one, uh, it was previously on my film franchises list. It's the opening sequence of Skyfall. Um, it's super iconic. The only answer I could really justify putting above, you know, sideways and breaking bad. There, there are shots in that scene that are like throwbacks to old Connery bonds, but it's so gorgeously shot. It's clearly doing its own thing. They're, they're like chasing on rooftops. I think it's in Istanbul. And then bond is just killing it. It looks real. And then ends on a, like a freaking train. It's 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 a perfect sequence, and I I remember I remember seeing that for the first time in IMAX, and I was just like, "This is the most beautiful movie I've ever seen." And uh, yeah, Skyfall, top ten of the twenty tens. It's a good call. It's a good call. I th- yeah, we needed the Bond representation somewhere. Is that the one you thought he was going <clears> to <throat> have, Zach? No, no, I thought he was going to go with what my number one is. Okay, well then, what's then your number my one? My number one is The Place Beyond the Pines. And you could mm-hmm. actually pick any number of scenes. There's really three scenes you can pick from The Place Beyond the Pines. You could go with the opening scene uh, at the carnival when we're first introduced to Ryan Gosling. You could go with the scene toward the end of Ryan Gosling's life as a bank thief, uh, dodging, the, dodging Bradley Cooper in, I think, one of the greatest movie chase scenes of all time. But I'm going to go with the probably least action-packed scene in that movie that involves Ryan Gosling's motorcycle, and that is when he's met up with uh, his baby mama, and they are taking a picture outside. Uh, Eva Mendez, and and they're taking a picture outside of the restaurant where she works, and he's got the baby in his arms, and Eva Mendez is crying, and the person taking the picture says. Uh, do you want the bike in the picture? And Ryan Gosling's response is bike's part of the family. That's a great scene in what I've often said is my favorite movie of the 2010s. If it's just the first 55 minutes, that movie uh, was extraordinary to watch. And it's the, 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 set, the hour and a half afterwards after Ryan Gosling's tragic demise is not quite as good, but the openings parts of that movie is probably the best movie ever made. Uh, just like Dead Weight is the best TV uh, episode probably ever. So motorcycles do play a role in great entertainment, but uh, hard to choose. Obviously, a lot of great motorcycle scenes in that movie, but that is the one that to me stands out and certainly the most dramatic uh, motorcycle scene. I can tell you're obviously choked up about it. So. <clears throat> I am. I'm crying. Can't you hear? <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Yeah, the opening sequence is crazy. The way he's riding that bike through that like circular, like spherical thing is yeah. It's- and it looks so real. Like, there's no way that was real, but it doesn't look like there's any CGI involved. It's amazing. And then the chase scene, which he shot, 
I, it looks like it's at like 180 frames a second or something. I, it really just, it makes you feel like you're there. Like it's, it's it, nothing it ends hits... in, in the back of a truck. Like, I mean, that that's crazy. Right. Yeah. Like, I've never, I didn't know, never con like, I would never consider that as a possibility of where you would hide your vehicle <laughs> like or in that way. I don't remember anything about Place Beyond the Pines. Oh, that's a shame. I know. I need to. I need to watch it again. Ten years, not too late to do a deep dive. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's go through our uh, our five to one, and then talk some honorable mentions. So for me, number five, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> number four, The World's Fastest Indian. This list sucks. Number three, <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> number two is a tie between Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick, and number one, GTA San Andreas, which is a scene only in my heart. Todd. <laughs> Number five, the motocross sequence in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. Number four, Stephanie attacking Jack with her helmet in Sideways. Number three, chasing after Jesse's killers in The Fast and the Furious. Number two, Todd shoots Drew Sharp in Breaking Bad. And number one, the opening sequence of Skyfall. And uh, num number five, Kill Bill Volume 1. Number four, the opening of Speed 2. Number three, The Kids Are All Right with Stickman Mark Ruffalo, number two, Dead Weight from Breaking Bad, and number one, uh, the bike's part of the family in The Place Beyond the Pines. <clears throat> All right. Honorable mentions for me. Uh, by the time we, we finish this, I'm actually up to, up to five honorable mentions, so that's good. Uh, my first one is, uh, is Band of Brothers, the joyride that the, that the two have, um, uh, and then it's paid off later when... Uh, when uh, Sobel finds the bike and is trying to get Malarkey, and I don't even remember who the other guy was that was driving it, but Malarkey was in the sidecar trying to get them into trouble for it. And uh, anyways, it's a great scene. Uh, anything with uh, Tackleberry in a police academy movie because he's a he's a motorcycle cop. Yeah. Um, the uh, the dream Vespa sequence in Luca. Um, <laughs> that yeah that that's one I went with. Um, so then another one I thought of while, while we were talking was X-Men origins, Wolverine. There's this whole chase sequence where, where Wolverine's on a, on a motorcycle. And at one point he, he like stops himself by shoving his claws into the ground and does like a pinpoint turn by doing that. And it's pretty cool. Uh, I actually, so I'm still trying to figure it out. I actually found that because I was looking for a scene. I feel like there's a scene where someone like, like, launches a motorcycle at a helicopter to take it down and i couldn't remember what it was like it feels like it's like hitman's bodyguard maybe or a diehard movie or something i couldn't remember but there's something out there where that happens and it's pretty sweet when it does and then uh the last honorable mention is basically every scene of ghost rider with nicholas cage yes nice so well and i think in fast and furious six uh they shoot a car out of helicopter, like they jump out. I think Dom does it off the roof of something, but I don't well, think maybe that's what I'm thinking of. It's not a motorcycle, know. but I, I don't know. Uh, so the ones I have that are already been mentioned, uh, I have Zed's Dead Baby, uh, in Pulp Fiction. I have um, the opening of Place Beyond the Pines, the Okinawa sequence in Kill the Volume One, the arriving at Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick, both of the scenes Terry mentioned in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, in Police Academy 3, I have Zed and Sweet Chuck arriving at Police Academy, <laughs> which I, I think is a brilliant yes. 
little scene. Uh, oh, Sweet wow. Chuck's on his little scooter and, and Zed's on his big old bike. Uh, I have the, the instructions. Just go around but... me. Just go around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, uh, I have the introduction to Duke Kaboom in Toy Story 4. He's like a, you know, a wow. motorcycle stuntman. That's a good one. <clears throat> Forgot about Keanu uh, Reeves, right? Keanu yes, Reeves, exactly. yeah. I have the uh, attempted escape sequence in The Great Escape. I mean, it really just needs to be mentioned. I mean, the jump over the barbed wire and that, that whole sequence is really breathtaking. In a movie that was really comedic up to that point. Uh, the chase in uh, Mission Impossible 2. I mean, he rides that bike a lot. And um, <laughs> the last one is uh, Mr. Turner's accident in Boy Meets World. It yes. isn't actually a scene, but it's uh, but it's uh, the yeah, aftermath of it is like a lot. I still remember being traumatized from that. You can tell in his voice. All right. Zach, honorable mentions. Uh, my honorable mentions. I'm going with, um, okay, uh, Grey's Anatomy. Um, uh, so uh, Sandra O's character in Grey's Anatomy also drives a motorcycle, <clears throat> which is obviously a, an, an ode to Sideways. Um, the share movie mask with Eric Stoltz, uh, she rides a motorcycle in that movie. I don't remember the specific scene, but she's big into biking. I also thought about Luca. Um, I thought about the rock, um, after the scene in when, uh, he steals the, the truck, uh, in the car, he has a bike that he steals and that's where he goes to meet, uh, Jade on the bench. I'm not such a bad guy, you know, Jade. If you give me a chance, to, to, let me be your dad, Jade. Um, and then talking that voice the rest of the podcast. Obviously, the great escape. Um, it came out the best. <laughs> the last one I had was the forty-year-old virgin. Not that there's an actual bike in it, but Catherine Keener <laughs> thinks that she rides a bike. He rides a bike. Oh, I dated the guy who rode bike in college. It was awesome. And, uh, <laughs> no, a bike, yeah, a, a bike, a bicycle. <laughs> all right sounds good let's go on to guessing adam's list i mean i had trouble coming up with ones for my list so uh this is gonna be bad but let's see how we do all I'm right win. i'm probably gonna win all right number five uh i'm gonna go with uh some sort of stunt involving a motorcycle from jackass um i'm not a entirely sure which one but i'm just gonna say it's pretty good jackass in general i'm going with that number four terminator 2 judgment day uh number three kibble volume one number two place beyond the pines and number one mad max fury road Talk. all right i have number five uh the opening of skyfall number four arriving at top gun number three the biker chase in mad max fury road number two escaping from the germans in indiana jones and the last crusade Ooh. and Number one, uh, the light bike chase in um, uh, Tron Legacy. All right, Zach. Okay, number five, Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Uh, number Ooh. four. Now, I'm not necessarily saying the sequences from these movies because I don't care that much. I'm just putting the, the, the title out there. Number four, I'm going with the Star Wars movie. Any any something any movie in the Star Wars franchise. Number th partic I think Return of the Jedi has something involving motorcycles. Number three, Dumb and Dumber, the scene that Terry mentioned. Number two, Matrix Reloaded. And number one, Terminator 2. I feel like we should have said the the bat bike that he has in the Dark Knight or whatever. Like, 
that's probably going to be on his list. I, just, I don't know. I just thought of that. How come we didn't? None of us even thought to mention that. That's depressing. <laughs> All right, here we go. Adam's list. Honorable mentions. Return of the Jedi. There we go. <laughs> the Endor speeder bike chase. I knew it was in Return of the Jedi. <clears throat> do they hover, though? They're not actual bikes, yeah, though, right? They call them bikes, I think. Tomb Raider Cradle of Life riding the Great Wall. Not a kid. Uh, Ghost Rider, The Last Ride. Uh, Ready, Ready Player One, race sequence with Akira bike. Uh, I was going to say Akira. He, he doesn't have a, a scene. He doesn't have his rating of Akira on the website. Well, but he said Ready Player One. He's I know, but if he knows what Akira is, oh. then you would think you would have seen it, right? Yeah. And his last honorable mention is Final Fantasy VII. Cloud stealing the hardy Daytona. Yeah, I'm sure someone out there knows again. knows what that means. Yeah. All right, here we go. Number five, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, motorcycle chase. Yes. Number four, The Place Beyond the Pines, Ryan Gosling on a motorcycle for 45 minutes, four stars. <laughs> Number three, Skyfall opening sequence. There we go. Number two, The Dark Knight bat pod sequence. Idiot. And number one, Terminator 2 Judgment Day truck chase scene. Well, I got his number one. I have I have two right. I have two right. Well, you got his number one. How many how many did you get right, Zach? I think that was the only one. So he got but he got his number one right. I got his number one and his number four, but they were in the wrong places. And what did you get, Todd? I had his number two and num- or I had I had his number five and, and his five. number three, and they were in the wrong places. So it sounds like Terry wins. If you had his number one right and you had another one. Yeah. Okay. I win. That is, I told you we were gonna win. <laughs> uh, Terry has twenty-seven. Zach has. <laughs> 28 and i have 43 and i've been stuck on that for for a while yeah all right moving on trivia time are you ready well let's hope so oh i forgot about this john void is a slap in the face this is going downhill quick trivia zach you had to assign us stuff who's going first Uh, let's go with uh you first terry all right so for my assigned movie this week, I had to watch uh, a movie that uh, came up in conversation uh, a while, a little while ago when we did our last Best Picture draft because I picked it as the number one movie that was left out of the Best Picture lineup, and that's a sweet hereafter. And I hadn't seen it yet, so Zach assigned it to me because I said it needed to be a part of it, and it's in Zach's top 100 of all time. Uh, it is uh, written and directed by Adam Agoyan, based off a Russell Banks novel, and it is about a uh, a lawyer who goes to a small town to help uh, help with the investigation and help bring about any lawsuits needed after a bus crash killed most of the kids in a in this small town uh, school bus crash. Uh, Ian Holm plays the main character. Uh, there's a couple other familiar faces mainly sarah Pauly, who plays one of the children uh and uh bruce greenwood who plays one of the fathers uh there's also uh maury chaikin 
I don't know why I know that face, but I know that face. I'm trying. I was trying to remember. Oh, I, oh, you know what it was? He's from Twins, the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito movie. That's that's the. I don't know why, but I remember him from that. Uh, this is a fascinating movie. Like like you've heard, it's a very simple premise, uh, and it's kind of a heartbreaking movie at the same time because it has a lot of stuff. Uh, it, it's heavy and he's asking these people to re uh to remember and uh and talk about these these horrible traumatic things um wonderful performance in this by uh gabrielle rose who plays uh the bus driver rose i thought she was amazing uh and uh the one thing i will say i felt like this is definitely a movie that leaves a lot of stuff open-ended and doesn't really answer a lot of questions, which I'm usually a fan of and I like it here. However, I felt like it left a few too many questions unanswered and needed to, to give a little bit of closure. It doesn't really give any closure. I felt like, and uh, I, I wouldn't, I wanted to see just a little bit more explained as to how the ending comes about. Uh, but even with that said, it's a three and a half star movie. It's uh, I think it's going to be in my top 10 of 97 now. Uh, it's it's a pretty remarkable film. So do you think that Oscar voters would put it as their number six through 10? Wasn't it your number six or your it number was one, my number six, number six because and it was my number six because Adam McGoin was nominated for best director, which after seeing the movie, I have no idea why he was nominated for best director. This is not a best director nomination non- nominated work. I mean, it's it's fine directing. There's just not much to much that he does in this. It's just people sitting really? and talking. Oh, that's not and, and scenery I, shots. That's that's, it's, that's totally disingenuous. I think the movie is brilliantly filmed. It's brilliantly uh, arranged in terms of the chronology of events. Which I mean, David O. Russell should take. But a chronology of events. That's that's the script. That's not the direction. Well, I mean, it's it's the, I guess the, the oversight of the project. I don't know. I think it's a really cinematic movie. It's it's shot in this kind of uh, beautiful but very like Fargo esque, you know, snowy uh, place in Canada. And I think I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's beautifully directed. Uh, movie doesn't so, have to be high budget Titanic to get a best director nomination, but true. But uh, I, you expect a little bit more showy than just a, a very talky movie like this. Um. What do I think it was number six? No, do I think, but even when I picked it, I didn't say I I think it would be number six. I said I think it would be in the top 10. And uh, and it's it's hard to get a best director nomination and not be in the top 10, so that that's why I picked it. But another um, round, another well, yeah, there's been a couple. Another round is one, I mean, that was only nine, I think, still right. And uh, the other one was Foxcatcher, I think, that has done it. Oh, and, and, the, and a war. Well, and the, what about the black and white movie? Uh, uh, the Powell Powellski. Yeah, a war. Yeah. Isn't that Cold what it's called? War. Cold War. Cold War. Is yeah. it Cold War? Yeah. Cold oh, war, war. Okay. Yeah. Cold War. Yeah, a, a war was another nominated foreign film from like That's 2017 right. or something. Uh, but yeah, you're. I, I see your point in that it's not necessarily an Oscar-y movie, especially for the '90s. But, well, talk uh, to her isn't either. I mean, but I mean that yeah. it just—it seems like it would be in that drive my car kind of vein. Yeah, it had—it definitely had some pedigree there. Anyway, it, it's a great film. I'm glad you made me watch it. 
But what I like about it is that it kind of deconstructs the idea of a tight knit community. You know, it kind of shows all these people and they're ostensibly friendly to each other. But when a tragedy hits, their true character is revealed. And I, of course, like movies that show the dark side of human nature. I like that you go into the movie sort of expecting a John Grisham type mystery or a legal thriller, maybe because you think that the lawyer is just an ambulance chaser, which he really is. Um, the movie starts out being about the culpability of Dolores, the bus driver, and maybe the bus manufacturing company. It's not about that at all. It's about the people in the town who don't like each other and don't trust each other. And for good reason. And you get this remarkable performance, I think, by Sarah Pauly in the movie, who in, in a way the movie shifts from being about Ian Holm to being about Sarah Pauly and kind of the uncovering of what happens to her, I think is, is really tragic, but also remarkable. I think the sequence where he tells that story on the plane about his daughter almost dying, it's movies also about addiction too, mm-hmm. about how he, he second guesses whether his daughter just should have died, whether that would have been better for everybody. And he just is so, because like, like the people in the town, he has layers to him as well. I don't know. It's a movie I've returned to numerous times. I think it is in- incredibly fascinating. Every character in the movie has uh, a really fascinating arc and story. Bruce Greenwood, I think, is amazing in the movie. I, he should have gotten an Oscar nomination. Uh, and I know we just mentioned Dead Freight. This is also probably my number two movie that involves a spider or scene that involves a spider. But uh, it's it's a wonderful movie. And Adam McGowan hit that peak in the 90s with this movie in Exotica. He's never returned to those heights ever again. And so he had his moment there. Um, and it's kind of sad that he hasn't returned to it. But those are two great Canadian movies, both in my top 100 of all time. Yep, it, it, it's a good one. And especially Ian Holm, I thought should he, he was Oscar worthy there for sure, especially that that sequence. All right, Todd, what did you have to watch? Uh, I watched the movie from this year of uh, Sundance movie from last year, actually uh, on the count of three directed by Gerard Carmichael. And uh, it's a story of these two guys, Val and Kevin played by uh, Carmichael and Christopher Abbott, who is in every indie movie ever right now. And uh, they are best friends. They're kind of fed up with everything in their lives. Like Kevin is uh, Christopher Abbott. And he's like constantly dealing with visions of his past and his abuse and Val is, hates everything about his life and his job. So they agree that they're going to shoot each other in the head to put themselves out of their misery. But their plan doesn't exactly go as planned. So they decide they're going to go off on their last day of life and settle old scores and take revenge on people that made them so miserable, kind of. I mean, that's a sort of the plot, but that's not really essentially what it's about. But I, I love this type of black comedy. It reminded me of God Bless America, the Bobcat Goldthwait movie. It has that level of darkness and just disdain for so much of society. It's really funny and dark and engaging. Um, Chris Rabbit is fantastic. He, I think this might be his best performance. He, um, um, Among uh, the actors that, can, that wear their pain and shame on their sleeve as, much, as well as he has. Um, uh, Jorah Carmichael is great as well, but I, I think he's a better director than he is an actor. He, the movie really plays well. It moves. It looks um, better than it probably needed to. And his sensibilities as a performer actually do aid in it as well. But I think he's a really good director. He, he somehow is able to create a lot of empathy when um, just by the aura that he gives off. And it's not necessarily uh, a character that would, would warrant that. 
Um, the movie takes a lot of swings, and I think it hits on most of them just because the actors are so so good. It also has these like really random character actors throughout it, not necessarily as ridiculous as in Amsterdam, but there's like uh, bookmarks where you have like Tiffany Haddish has a scene, you have Henry Winkler has a scene, you have Huel in there, you have J.B. Smoove. Um, there's weirdly a lot of I what that stood out to me. There's like I feel like I saw Sean Hunter in both of the characters. Like, and it was really weird. Um, and I, cause I could see him, his character eventually turn into both of those, both those characters. Uh, but at its core, it's like a, it's a really messed up, pessimistic Wes Anderson movie with like a little bit of blind spotting in there. And I loved it. It's, it's realistic. It's funny. It's tragic. And uh, three and a half stars. And yeah, one of the best movies of the year for sure. Excellent. That's that's what I wanted to hear. When I watched this movie, I thought, damn, this is a Todd movie. But it's a really good Todd movie. And uh, I love it, too. I think it's one of the discoveries of this year. I think Gerard Carmichael is, is amazing in it. I love that the movie is completely and totally unpredictable. And it's an hour and 25 minutes. There is no way you watch this movie and know what's going to happen next. And you're right. It takes big swings. It takes a lot of risks. It's about something that is really real dark humor i mean there it's gallows humor in this movie and yet there's funny stuff in it there's also stuff about trauma and abuse um and victimization and you get the bobcat goldthwaite like that that's his it feels like one of his movies yeah it does it does but the blind but there's blind spotting in it in the sense that the christopher abbott character is maybe more unhinged actually kind of goes back and forth about who's more unhinged as the story goes along and i actually think the last scene the last shot which is a very long single take is kind of a beautiful ending in, in a way that, again, I wasn't expecting that way, the movie to end that way, um, but it's a perfect ending for that story. So I'm glad you liked it. And I, Terry, you need to watch it so it can be officially thrice approved. That's on right. Hulu. Sweet. Cool. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move off of that and into our actual trivia game. So Zach, you're hosting. All right. Well, we're going to keep it really simple today. Uh, so I texted Todd the other day that, um, there's only one place I've ever seen anyone talk about the movie Joe other than our podcast. And that was a recent YouTube clip where Susan Sarandon talked about her entire career. And she spent a good four minutes talking about Joe, which was really interesting. Um, she says that it was a trashy movie and that it was, you know, bare, bare bones. And she, and that she wasn't good in it. She wasn't good in it. Yeah. She wasn't very, uh, complimentary of her performance i've also seen a lot of susan sarandon in the, the commercials for that country music series so we're just going to do a straight up susan sarandon filmography because i've got her on my mind and she was great in joe and obviously we that's a movie that uh we're, we're, we've already mentioned it so we you can't mention joe but obviously her, her best known movie uh but we're going to go with a susan sarandon filmography because i went on a deep dive about her recently and it was it was it was quite fun and enjoyable and actually she's been in a lot more things than you would expect and i was kind of thinking like well you know this this list could go on for a while um but she's obviously had a long and storied career so we're gonna go ahead and start with todd uh thelma and louise that is correct dead man walking correct her oscar-winning role bull durham well, Durham is correct. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Also correct. Some fun stories about that movie, too, in, in her clip. Uh, the Client. 
the client Oscar nominated role is correct. Somehow Oscar nominated. Stepmoms. Stepmom is the name of a oh, stepmom. I, I, step I will give you the point for it. Yes. There's only one stepmom and it, it ain't okay. Susan Sarandon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did did I say Bull Durham? You did yes. say Bull Durham. Okay. Um Little Women. Little Women is correct. Um think See, i might be out and she hasn't been in that marvel bullshit so you can't use shit like the avengers <laughs> that's also what i applaud about susan sarandon uh i'm gonna go with gosh uh the player the player i do not believe she was in the player i'm i can double check. oh god she was yeah. Wow, Terry, nicely done. She plays herself in the player. The game is alive. Nicely done. <laughs> that was a great guess. That was a really good guess. I mean, when in doubt, go with a go, go with, with player. Her, go with a star-studded cast starring her husband. So <laughs> you're missing. You're missing some big ones. I must be a bigger yeah. fan than than you guys. I. I really dig Susan Sarandon. She and uh, the Banger Sisters. Yeah, the Banger Sisters is 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 one okay. Goldie Hawn classic movie, two thousand two movie that none of us said would get Best Picture. <laughs> Golden Globe nominee. That's yeah, that's true. Can you think of another star-studded cast, Terry? Could we go with um, I don't know, uh, State uh, and Maine. State and Maine. <laughs> A really good guess. That is unfortunately not a movie she was in, but or, or can, can I go with the the Lonely Island song "Mother Lover"? <laughs> Her and Patricia Clarkson. That's not a movie, but uh, <laughs> I do appreciate your effort, Todd. Do you have any more that you can name in this depressing showing of Susan Sarandon's filmography? I mean, I know she's been in a lot of really bad comedies in the last like twenty years, but I just can't picture which ones are her and which ones aren't like. Mary Steenburgen or Sigourney Weaver or I mean they're all they're all in the same category to me. Okay, well, in that case, I'll just read a few. She was in Cloud Atlas, she was in Arbitrage, Jeff Who Lives at Home, Tammy, um, <laughs> Irresistible, Elizabeth Town, Alfie, Anywhere But Here. That's the one I would have gotten. That's Elizabeth one of her all-time best roles is Anywhere But Here with uh, Natalie Portman. Um, Lorenzo's Oil, which she got an Oscar nomination oh, for. Oh, I just watched it. Which I believe Terry just watched. Another really underrated movie that someday I'll assign to Todd is White okay. Palace. She's great in that movie. Mr. Whitney. Woodcock. Mr. Woodcock. Uh, Atlantic City, Witches of Eastwick, Pretty Baby. Um, Atlantic City, I should have gotten. Yeah. So you, you had some had some big misses there, but so be it. No no MCU to uh, save save yourself. So by a score of five to four, however impressive Terry's pulling the player out of his ass was Todd. Moon's he almost deserves it. Elizabeth Town, Terry. I know, I know. Yeah, that was bad. I think I should get an extra point for guessing State and Maine too. Like, yeah, you had like a there. There was probably like a minus one thirty chance you were hitting that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap this up. Quote of the daytime and. We are going to Todd first since he just won. 
Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Uh, so I was at a, a whiskey distillery yesterday and I saw a sign that had a quote from Mark Twain that I thought I'd quote, which is awesome. It says, too much of anything is bad, but too much good whiskey is barely enough. <laughs> and I feel like that describes this podcast. Uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I feel like I should go go with a quote I've I've done before just because of that one. I think I'm going to. I'm going to pull an audible and I'm going to go with the quote that's on my coaster because it. you, you had a quote about whiskey. I have a quote about beer. I've quoted it before, but it's from Benjamin Franklin. And it says, beer is living proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. Right, right there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my quote. Zach, wrap us up. My quote, quote, quote a dead guy from 200 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> my quote comes from the place beyond the pines. And it's after uh, Ryan Gosling has moved in with Ben Mendelsohn, one of the great pairings in cinematic history, in my opinion, and they're dancing and he's, you know, pulling the dog and moving it around. And uh, Ryan Gosling says, not since Holland Oates, Oates has there been such a team. And that's the way I feel about this podcast. Yes. You really don't remember anything about it? Wow. That's that was it, that, that immediate, that was, I saw that at a film festival. That was immediately like, okay, this is, might be the best movie of the year. I remember. I like. I believe you texted me like right away after you saw it. And Derek C. M. France, man. What happened? Can we get a great Derek C. M. France movie again? Is that a possibility? Well, his big budget movie was... A flop. Right. What was Let's, the big budget movie? The Light Beyond the Oceans or something with uh, Michael Fassbender and... A tip for Derek C.M. France is... Alicia Vikander, maybe? Let's stop with the pretentious titles. That could be. I was going to say, he, he already hit once with Beyond Something. He didn't need to do it again. No, he did that uh, TV series that was a bust, though. Um, the Light Between Oceans is what it was um, called. Yeah, but, but the TV series was supposed to be terrible. I know this much is true. Also a pretentious title. Uh, that was supposed to be pretty bad. Which one was that? It was about... Oh, like, with Mark the, Ruffalo. Oh, the, yeah, Mark he's Ruffalo like playing two characters. Yeah, yeah. That should have been on our list last week of characters in uh, dual roles, except none of us saw it, and it wasn't very good. <laughs> well... <laughs> With with uh with pretentious Derek C in France and uh two hundred year old dead guys, we're gonna bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening to episode one ninety four. Again, make sure you're subscribing, rating, reviewing wherever you find your podcast. We'll be back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.